Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Bail Your Peace Theater, your movie podcast for the near misses, the cinematic disasters, and the titanic failures of Hollywood past and present. This week on The Chopping Block is Sam Raimi in an odd film, an odd <laughs> choice for a film for Sam Raimi to do, perhaps. Uh, Oz the Great and Powerful from 2013, starring James Franco, Mila Kunis, Rachel Weisz, Shell Williams et al. Um, joining me, as always, is... Catherine. And I am your amiable co-host, Tim. And so we are here to discuss this very odd footnote in the history of Sam Raimi and his film output. Uh, it is his last film uh, since... Uh, so it's been eight, almost nine years since we've seen a Sam Raimi movie of any kind. Uh, he's continued his you know, TV producing work from what I understand. But as far as directing a feature film, this is it. And he is about to return. Um, we are about to get uh, what I assume will be the beginnings of a Raimi-verse. Um, Marvel Cinematic mm. Raimi-verse. In, they finally um, got him. In the, that's right. They finally have been validated. They went back to where it began with Spider-Man. And now they've come full circle. And they're giving him Doctor Strange. Uh, another popular 70s marvel character so it does make sense this would be a character that you know very famously with spider-man 3 uh sam raimi you know said in many of the interviews after after the you know it wasn't it wasn't great that he didn't understand a lot of the characters he was asked to work with specifically venom right whereas you know because his understanding of spider-man was all you know early 1970s john buscema john ramita you know early you know spider-man villains and stuff and so that's what he wanted to work with but of course you know the fandom demanded venom we got in the him. form of in the form of topher grace which <laughs> certainly which i'm not sure is what they wanted is that not you what got wanted? what you wanted be careful what you wish for it was kind of a monkey paws casting in a yeah. movie like well is this really what you wanted <laughs> really is this what you were looking for everybody i don't know um, so this too is a film with a few questionable casting choices. Um, but I guess to discuss this, we we can sort of briefly address Sam Raimi and sort of who he mean, you know, what he means to us, because he is a significant filmmaker for both of us in terms of our development as oh cinephiles. Is that what we want to mm -hmm. call ourselves? Perhaps I don't know. Um, you know, he certainly was for me. Um, yeah. You know, I think I've even told the story before that, you know, Evil Dead 2 was, was probably one of the first like serious, scary movies that I ever watched. Um, you know, it, it was horror purely, right? Not sci-fi horror, not, you know, anything else, but just horror. And, and I remember being, you know, sort of excited by it, thrilled by it. Um, you know, it was obviously very funny as well, which, you know, was a, a tone that wasn't super common in, in horror at the time, although I think you know, it started to pick up steam by the time Evil Dead 2 rolled around. But so, I mean, uh, an important filmmaker, a guy who established independent horror, who, you know, basically crowdfunded his first project into existence, which yeah. has now become a sort of normal way to, to fund films. Um, he, you know, then would sort of reshape cinema again with the success of Spider-Man in 2000 bringing, you know, a character to the, the big screen in a way that, that had never been seen before and was, as a result, more successful than anything that had come before it. You know, there is there are a lot of arguments to be made that we would not have 
our modern crop of superhero, you know, Titanic cinema projects if it was not for Sam Raimi and Spider-Man. Um, looking back at Spider-Man now in the context of how superhero films have developed, it's a little goofy. <laughs> it is silly, I think. It is um, frankly the kind of superhero movie I prefer. Like I I don't like the the gritty I don't like the the many explosions, so many explosions, so loud. Everything is blowing up all of the time in every movie. Um, Massive I, explosions. Yeah. I like that Spider-Man feels smaller. It's it's on a much smaller scale. No citywide destruction or. <laughs> massive like interplanetary wars or anything like that it's just it's just a very simple story right and no purple aliens deleting half the population yeah and like that's sam raimi he doesn't he doesn't have huge movies i can't think of any of his films i mean maybe parts of army of darkness felt like it was trying to bring up the scale of the story a bit but even still that sure. feels like a very small film and it feels yeah, like a I small mean, story Nothing that Sam Raimi had done up until Spider-Man justified him being given Spider-Man. Yeah. Not at all. Especially if you look at his late 90s output. Because after Darkman, um, he went and he made a bunch of like small dramas, right? A Simple Plan. Um, which I love. Uh, That's a which, great yes, movie. I mean, for the love of the game, I mean, for the love of the game, is a great baseball movie. I mean, if you like baseball, it's a really good baseball movie. Um, you the, have to deal with the Costner, but you know, the gift is a fantastic supernatural little. It is another very film. small one. It's was, so good. Was that Kate Blanchett? It was. Yeah, it was, it was early Kate Blanchett, pre Lord of the Rings, Kate Blanchett. Um. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, his output is not bad by any stretch, but he had gone from because Darkman was a pretty big swing. Yeah. Right, really. I mean, it, both in terms of budget and what he was trying to do. Um, and it you know, is a silly movie. It is, but I love it. Oh I love it goodness. too. My <laughs> wife, my my wife bought me the Shout Factory re-release of the Blu-ray, and it's it's glorious. Like that movie is so much fun. And that's, I guess, it. And and I guess it's worth acknowledging that uh, Red Letter Media has ju it just did a review of of Dark Man. Dark Man yeah. was on my list to talk about on here too. Um, and we may still, because I, I have many things to say about Darkman. But, you know, they, you know, they kind of talked about, you know, the nature of, of Batman being this huge bombastic thing, which was really, you know, Batman sort of set the stage, proved to movie studios that superheroes had, you know, big budget viability. But then we had sort of a languishing period in the 90s where everybody was kind of trying stuff. But you know, Batman Returns had been kind of a middling success. Batman Forever was huge, most successful of the franchise, but certainly started the downward swing. And then, of course, Batman and Robin sort of sealed that coffin with many, many nails. Um, but you could feel that the industry was trying to sort of figure out, well, what does a comic book movie look like, right? For, so for Tim Burton, it was, I don't want it to look anything like a comic book. Nothing at all. And Anyone then, who knows me knows that I would never read a comic book. I would book. never read a comic book. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. And then by the time we get to Batman and Robin, you've you've gone full swing in the other direction, where Joel Schumacher's saying, I want this to be a comic book, a moving comic book. I want right this colors. to be ridiculous. And, and ridiculous. And so maybe that's where Sam Raimi came in, because Darkman was, at a time when nobody was doing it, a marriage of those two things. Yeah. It is extremely comic book. It is extremely over the top and kind of silly. 
but it also has this sort of darker undertone. It's handled seriously. It's 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 sort of like a um you know a monster origin story, right? Which yeah. I know the review talked about a little bit. And it was in the midst of the the very anti-hero heroes of comic books. I mean, if you look at at the kinds of comics that were on the shelves, it was all about people heroes who were not very heroic. They were not very likable oh, or yeah. good people in many respects, but they were still, you know, the hero of the story. Um, right. The 80s were the deconstruction, where the deconstruction yeah. of the superhero began. The 90s is where it really took over because you also began to see the fracturing of the comic book industry. Yeah. The rise of the indies, Dark Horse image, obviously, in the mid-90s is all the creators from Marvel, you know, split off and did their own thing. And so you start seeing all these much darker characters because those rules of being bright and bubbly and Spider-Man must save the day, all that stuff falls away. And and now you can do whatever you want. So you've got Todd McFarlane putting out Spawn, who is an actual demon from hell who rips people apart, you know. I and mean, kind of a jerk. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit of a butthead when you think about it. Um, you know, so you've got this much darker thing because, you know, these these tendencies had always been there, but there were forces at the big studios and the big publishers who held that stuff in check because at the, at the end of the day, they had spent the last 30 years being kids books yeah, and, and struggling. So they, you know, they were happy to, oh, we'll put out the Vertigo imprint. We'll put all our weird shit over there. You know, like they were more than happy to do that, but you were never, ever, ever going to see Wonder Woman do anything out of character for Wonder Woman, right? It was never going to yeah. happen. And so like there was this, this, you know, rise of like, we want these kinds of out there stories. And finally there were venues for them to start appearing and they did. And yeah, I mean, again, and we could also get into just nineties culture in general. It's anti-corporate it's, you know, resisting, you know, the man, right? I mean, like the whole thing was about counterculture, you know, forces beating their heads against, you know, traditional values and that was just kind of what was going on and so spider-man hits and it's it is and and still is in many ways that sort of perfect blend of those two things which sam raimi had already started to sort of hit with dark man right finding that balance between dark gritty scary but also sort of funny and silly i mean there's a scene in that movie where dark man like runs over the top of a tank of a, a 18 wheeler and he's like and it, it, you could almost put the 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 speeding feet sound effect from a roadrunner yeah. cartoon over it right i mean it's it's just that image and so and, it's that nice sort of balance of those two things and Raimi's sense of humor and his sense of comedic timing in film is sort of unparalleled i mean it's so in, unique even yeah, in the evil I mean, dead there are mm -hmm. moments in that movie as low budget as very very tiny as that movie is it is hilarious it's such a funny movie it is. um yeah. and he's what i've always really liked and what i think works for his comic book movies is that he has great physical comedy like yes. he just knows how to make a physical joke land and that is so useful for comic book movies because it keeps them from looking bland it keeps them from looking like just boring action movies and right and i and that is something that is absolutely missing. I love the yeah. new Spider-Man movies. Like, I'm not going to say that they're bad. They're not. They're well-made. They're well-acted. I think Tom Holland is a, is a great Peter Parker. Like, he's really good at what he's doing. Um, but they don't have that level of sort of, like, physical action-based comedy. Yeah. Right? Even the Andrew Garfield ones had better that 
than these modern ones do. I mean, there are funny things that happen while Spider-Man is in the suit, of course. Like, you can bounce Spider-Man off a wall and put a sound effect with it and have it be a joke. But it's not super effective. Not in the same yeah. way that Raimi's capable of making it effective. Um, and that's why I think at the end of the day, as much as I do enjoy these new Spider-Man films, and, and I, I don't feel compelled to rewatch them very often. Yeah. Let me put it that way. Um, I think I really about 2002 you know, Spider-Man a lot. <laughs> totally. Spider, I mean, Spider-Man 2 is still one of the best superhero movies ever. Yeah. And the fact that the new Spider-Man, I'm going to be super honest, and, and I don't want to spoil anything people still haven't seen. I know it's just coming out in home video and streaming now, but part of the reason why that new Spider-Man movie works as well as it does is because Spider-Man 2 is still fucking awesome. Yeah. And and that because like the big emotional moments in No Way Home are direct callbacks to Spider-Man 2. Like direct callbacks. Like no bones about it. Like characters say the same lines. They deliver mm-hmm. them in the same way. Right? Like it because that movie is so iconic and so brilliant in its formation. Um and so, like, you know, we, we could roll around this all day, but simply put, Sam Raimi is not a bad filmmaker, and he doesn't really make bad movies. He makes movies that are, I'll say, more interesting than other ones that he's made. He doesn't but, seem to be afraid to make anything. No, and that is so strange. Like, you would, and maybe it's because he started in horror, and he knew immediately, I've got to break out of this, or it is all I will ever do. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Or maybe it was because... The Cohen brothers were peeping in his ear, being like, Sam, yeah, you, you made your you made your mark, but now we need to move on. Don't Toby and, Hooper yourself. Get out of this. <laughs> I mean, and and honestly, as I was reviewing a lot of, you know, sort of Raimi's career, Toby Hooper is the analog for yeah. where this goes wrong. Right? He was a few years before Raimi, right? I mean, we're talking about basically five years difference between these guys as they were coming up in their career. But Raimi could have very easily become Toby Hooper, but through either different opportunities, better choices. I mean, it's hard to say. But yeah, there's no one movie in his career, like like you you said, there's nothing he did that would justify being given Spider-Man other than the fact that comic book movies were not a thing yet. They just they weren't right. the machine that they are now. And the other thing that may have helped, and this is one thing that, you know, if you do any reading of, on Sam Raimi from either, you know, I've read Bruce Campbell's book about growing up with Sam. I mean, it's it's about Bruce, but it's also really about Bruce and Sam. I mean, like, that's what he's talking about. Um, Raimi, because his first project was funded by dentists in the greater Michigan area, he is one of the most consistent filmmakers that is capable of delivering on time and typically under budget. Yeah. Which for a movie like Spider-Man, that may have been what got him in the conversation deeper than some of the other preeminent directors of the day. Because let's not forget, James Cameron was the one who was trying to get that off the ground for pretty much the entirety of the 90s. Yeah. But his budgetary requirements were too high. Like he wanted too much money to do it. He told him, I need $200 million to make this happen. And every studio in the world was like, no way. Never happening, dude. And Sam Raimi came in and said, I can do it for 150. And they're like, All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's part of it is that he's a very consistent director. It's very rare um, 
for him to sort of lose the managerial control of his projects. And if anything, I mean, of course, we all know that as the Spider-Man films grew in size and demand, Spider-Man 2 nearly broke him. <laughs> Apparently, Spider-Man 3 did. Um, there was a huge rift between himself and Danny Elfman at the end of Spider-Man 2 to the point where Danny Elfman said, I don't want to work with you anymore. That got patched that up. That didn't last. Back and he, he did the <laughs> score for this, of course, um, you know, for Oz the Great and Powerful. But but apparently the the Sam Raimi director that the scale of a project like Spider-Man 3 and the demands placed on him for Spider-Man 3 got to the point that he he really struggled. And so, you know, he, he took a break. He made a much smaller and and frankly really fun little horror movie called Drag Me to Hell, um, mm-hmm. which seemed like just an excuse for him to have people vomit stuff on other people. Yep. Um, it's the vomit film. Like if you've yep. ever wanted to see various individuals, primarily the main character, uh, just covered head to toe in black vomity substances, Drag Me to Hell is your ticket. It's your meal ticket. Like you can have it's, it at all. He's you can have returning it's returning to form with the with the nasty things getting puked on people, like in the Evil Dead movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's the cinematic equivalent of a palate cleanser. Like he said, yeah. I'm going to take five million dollars. I'm going to get Justin Long, that kid from those dumb Mac versus PC commercials. I love and, him. You know, <laughs> I do too. He's great. <laughs> um, but you know, and I'm and I'm just going to go make this little horror movie for no money, and I'm just going to go back to what I used to do. And and he did. And then he had a, a, a pretty successful producing run. They did the Evil Dead remake, which I'm not a massive fan of. Um, no. You know, Fidi, Al- Fidi Alvarez did a good job with it, but I think... It wasn't funny. The horror landscape <laughs> had changed so much that I, I think they held back on making it funny. And mm-hmm. it, it's a very legitimate horror film, which you could argue if it's a remake of the original Evil Dead, it's justified, you know, but... Evil Dead 2 is the original Evil Dead, but scary and funny. So why not use that as a model? I mean, and it's not like the the remake didn't have a few humorous moments, but that was not the point, right? They were, I mean, there's a, I mean, people die horribly in that movie, like really horribly. There were some scenes where I, I can remember watching it and I just sat back a couple of times and I'm like, why am I watching? Why am I doing this? (laughs) Yeah, it's, (laughs) it's a difficult watch, um, in terms of, of horror films. And it's good. I know it has its its absolute defenders, and and I'm totally fine with that. But it, it's not high on my list. But he produced that. He did direct the first episode of Ash versus Evil Dead, the series. Yeah. And and that is a very good episode. And and the hallmark Raimi bits are there. But obviously restrained on budget. They're using cheaper cameras. You know, I mean, it's 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 good. Right, but it's limited by the scope and scale of the project as well. And he's got a, as the the first episode director, you're the one that's establishing sort of the visual language of the show and the you know the rhythms and tone of it. And so he's got to do something that's going to be reproducible moving forward because obviously he's not going to direct every episode of the show. Um, I did enjoy that show. I thought it was very funny. I think it goes totally off the rails at the end, which is to be expected of an Evil Dead property, I suppose. But um, it was it was a good time. And I'll, I mean, I'll watch Bruce Campbell do anything. Yeah, I he's great. But then we have this then you have this movie. We do. Um he comes back to feature film directing to direct um just a weird project. Um I can see why Sam Raimi does it because Sam Raimi is is a a old school film fan, right? He got into making movies because he loves movies, especially classic film. 
And you can see these, these callbacks to classic film throughout all of his projects, right? I mean, there's Casablanca shots. There's, um, you know, tons of German expressionism, Dutch angle, universal monster movie stuff. Like all of those pieces are, are sort of ingrained in Sam Raimi's sort of filmic history. And I imagine what would have drawn him to this because he was not the initial director. He did not develop the project. He came in after the fact. It was in production at Disney. They had a producing team in place. They were putting out feelers for the actors and and Sam Raimi was brought on board to direct this. So he was not like their, I don't know if he was their first choice or not. I kind of imagine he wasn't. But he's got inroads. You know, He's obviously made three of the most successful films in the history of cinema at this point. Um, you know, just, even though Spider-Man three was terrible, it still made just bajillions of dollars because Spider-Man. I kind of like Spider-Man three. <laughs> you know, I, I will say that the common vernacular around our Spider-Man three is that it's a joke. We rewatched it not too long ago. We went through all the original Raimi Spider-Man films. The issues that I had with Spider-Man three when it first released, I found myself just not caring about this time. Yeah. And and instead I looked at it, I still think Venom should be out of the film. Venom is unnecessary to when the you, story. It, that it felt to bolted on even in the theater. I was like, this isn't part of the movie that I'm watching. This was just added. It, it definitely feels like they had the script done and then they were like, put Venom in it. And so they picked like seven scenes and they put Venom in it. And that's it. Yeah. Um, because he doesn't need to be there. You can totally come down to the end, fight with Hobgoblin and uh, Sandman and everything's fine. You know, the some of the retconning of the Uncle Ben murder is unnecessary, but I could see why they would want to do it to kind of wrap the trilogy to truly give Peter closure on that and redeem himself a bit since he contributed to the death of the guy that he thought did it. You know, again, if I was writing like a three a three movie arc for that character, sure, whatever. Yeah, it's it it's works. unnecessary. It's, is it like the comics? No, but we've already clearly established that no comic book movie is going to be exactly like the comics. And I guess people are just okay with that now. Maybe they weren't. They weren't. 2007. They really, really weren't. Out. They really weren't. They were struggling with that. And so, yeah, I, in rewatching Spider-Man 3, I kind of have no issue with it. I really yeah. don't. And it still has a lot of the same tonal qualities. But again, I think the problem was is that Spider-Man 2 was so successful on nearly every level that following it up with a movie that wasn't as good, it was always going to sort of put it down a peg. Um, you know, it's the return of the Jedi empire strikes back problem. Yeah. Return of the Jedi is not a bad movie. Oh, it's a great movie. It's fine. Like it's really good. It moves well. It's paced decently. The acting is, is, the characters are probably is a badass in return of the Jedi. In that one. I mean, he cuts a speeder in half. He looks While he's cool. standing still. He, he looks does really cool good. stuff. Yeah. And yeah, but it's just the second one was so good. Defying the all logic and so kicking good. ass in the second act. Makes no sense. Right. But it's great when a movie does it. And and it's become a sort of, you know, curse, common curse amongst, you know, sequel heavy franchises now. That the the second one will be great, the third one will be terrible. And then if you make any more after that, it's a crapshoot. Probably fifty fifty. If Star Trek's any indication, it's every odd one. <laughs> Your even ones are going to be shit. Um, although I did check out the director's edition of Star Trek, the motion picture on Paramount Plus. I love Star Trek, the motion picture. I, I kind of do, too. Like, it's such a weird thing, but it's a perfect bridge between the original series as an entity and then, you know, what they became in the movies. It kind of is that 
it's a, a nice little locking piece, but they just yeah. redid it in 4K uh, and it's Paramount Plus only. I'm sure it'll be on disc at some point, but um, it's gorgeous. Like, oh my yeah. God, that movie is gorgeous. And it's right on the cusp of them using a bunch of new technology, but it's they're basically making shots worse with a, with a lot of like hearty, well-established techniques, you know, a lot of, you know, mirror replacement, just all kinds of cool stuff from like the classic age. Cause it's directed by Robert Wise. Like one of the oldest schoolest directors in Hollywood came in and directed star Trek. I mean like yeah. how they even made that happen. I have no idea, but so he's got all this experience with classic, you know, you know, big budget, you know, special effects and in camera effects. And then they combine that with all of the new stuff learned from star Trek or from star Wars for all of the ships and compositing, which is still a little rough at times. Like there's some bad math lines still, but it just, it looked really good. I only made it, I only watched about 30 minutes of it. So I had time for, but it's, it's great. Um, you know, but so like we've got Raimi here, he's come off of Spider-Man traumatic experience, takes several years off, you know, bully to him. You know, I, 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 in general, I think a lot of Hollywood film directors work too much. Yeah, I think I considering think the level of involvement, breaks. how how stressful a film shoot is and how a director doesn't get to just come in like an actor and do their, you know, two to six weeks of shooting and be done with it. They're there for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, producers, too. Uh, yeah, they, yeah, I mean, they it's, work. It's three much. to five years of somebody's life, you know, especially just... when it's it's a director who is clearly invested in. The the actual construction of the film and he's a very involved director from what I understand just to, from what I know of his technique and how he likes to make movies he he does a lot of editing I mean he doesn't hand things off to other people so mm -mm. yeah that was burnout yeah and so he comes back for this and I think the the allure mm -hmm. here is that he's because this movie is drenched in classic Hollywood cinema yeah like drenched in it because, I mean, at this point, The Wizard of Oz is one of the most foundational films, even though it was not super successful at the time. But it's become part of the, the popular understanding of the development of film as an artistic medium. Yeah. Right? And, and a lot of that has to do with it's being constantly rerun on television throughout the 50s and 60s, sort of embedding it in the consciousness of that group. But it really does come down to... There were things in that movie that had never been seen before, techniques and, and, and things that had been done. It's a gorgeous film. It's a terrible adaptation of the original Wizard of Oz story. Um, Those are but, weird books. They're weird. Oh, they're, yeah. They're horrific books. And, and it's worth noting, too, that you know before Walt Disney was capable of owning the entirety of Hollywood and holding it in his <laughs> pocket, this was one of the ones that got away. This was one of the things that he desperately wanted to own to do an adaptation of and was unable to get the rights. Uh, MGM beat him out. And so, you know, this has led to Disney for decades, really trying to, to get the rights to the wizard of Oz as, as a story, as a franchise, and then do stuff with it. Um, which we've seen already uh, with return to Oz, which we've talked about on here, um, which was their attempt to adapt because they own the rights to all of the latter books now. Yeah, they they don't own the rights to the original. That's Which still are locked up by MGM. Weirder. Oh yeah, like <laughs> things. Once Baum, once you know Frank Al Baum got into 
the the political landscape of Oz and sort of all the different kingdoms and all the different you know groups and stuff, things just go hog wild in those books. I mean, they're kids' books. It's whatever you know. And apparently, Baum was questionable. He had some yeah. feelings on Native Americans that were yeah. less than savory. Um, you know. So anyway, the Disney has wanted these these stories for yeah. a long time. And apparently the, the, the production of this was so complicated because they could not in any way get close to infringing upon copywritten material from that original film that they actually had a lawyer on set every day, all day, to evaluate the choices being made and determine if it was actionable, if it was infringible information. So that's why you're never going to see Ruby Slippers. The Emerald City is, is designed way differently than the original you never really see the yellow brick road you know the the iconic imagery of the wizard of oz could not appear in this film because they would have been immediately sued for using the success of that movie to convince people that they were related projects yeah so uh, apart from that i can't imagine what an absolute pain in the ass that entire process was especially as a fan of film that wants to put those kinds of winks and nods and you know what have yous into it but yeah it's it's a mess like disney has wanted oz forever they finally got it and then this is kind of what they did with it which is really interesting mm. now the other thing worth mentioning here is that in the intervening years wicked had and gregory mcguire's book series and then eventually the you know stage production were blowing up throughout the early 2000s yeah so this and this so, now had like a, a sense of timeliness attached to it. That like we need to we need to do this now, <laughs> right? Because if not, Gregory Maguire is probably writing a book about it, and he's yeah. going to fuck us, right? So we got to get on this immediately, and and so that's sort of where it seems like all this came from, and 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 here is Ramy in the middle of this. Other interesting note about this: Ramy insisted that this film be shot in Michigan. <laughs> Uh, Michigan, like most states, does have a, a you know tax incentive program for filming in their state. Very rarely do people take advantage of it because who wants to shoot in Michigan? But <laughs> Sam Raimi's a Michigan boy, and I think part of his agreeing to do this movie was that we're going to shoot it and we're going to funnel some of your big ass Disney money back into my home state. Yeah, and and so. It, that in and of itself, I think, is great. But it also enabled him to bring in all of his Michigan friends, <laughs> um, because this movie has so many cameos from yeah. previous Raimi projects. Because they're all they're all just people from Michigan. Like that's just he just grabbed people from his neighborhood to make these movies, and and so he was able to bring many of them back. Like even uh, I, apparently some of the people that invested in the original Evil Dead are in here. Like one of the families. He brought them in, them in to be background characters. Very famously, the the three female characters from Evil Dead appear mm -hmm. as I, I think they're in like the Winky Village or something. But they're you know all three of them are there. He's you know Bruce Campbell's in it, of course. I mean, Bruce Campbell's in everything that Sam Raimi does. I'm very excited to see where Bruce Campbell is in Multiverse of Madness. He keeps saying he's not in it, and I'm like, shut up, Bruce. I <laughs> this thing. You are guaranteed to have at least one speaking line in this because Sam Raimi is going to make sure that you have royalties until the day you die. Like that's his. It seems like his goal. But you know, it's it's 
so that in and of itself is really cool is that he somehow was able to sort of convince this massive studio. No, we're not going to shoot at your stuff in Georgia. We're not going to go to Pinewood. We're not going to go to all these places where these movies normally get made. There's a perfectly good film studio in Michigan. We're going to shoot all this shit on green screen anyway. Yeah. What, what difference, difference does, does it make? make? So, you know, who, why does it matter if a union guy from California or a union guy from Michigan makes the sets? What do you care? Um, and so, uh, that is really cool. And, and I've, I read several news articles that were like, this movie pumped like a hundred million dollars into not only just the Michigan film industry, but 750 something jobs were created for people locally. So, so Sam Raimi, even if this film was not successful, I, I am on Sam Raimi's side because he helped a lot of people who would normally never get to work on a project of this scale in a film industry in a place like Michigan have work, feed their families, and hopefully, you know, make a, a good wage yeah. for the work that they did. And and so that to me is good. And and what that says to me, and, and one thing that I think is always worth noting about Sam Raimi is that Sam Raimi is a guy who knows what a privilege it is to be a filmmaker. Like he's he's talked about this before. Um, he loves making movies and he loves the process of making movies. But he also understands that it's, it's this massive team effort, which is why I think, much like Christopher Nolan, he's one of those dudes, he wears a suit to set every day, he takes it very seriously, and and he he knows that what he's doing impacts many, many other people. And so, like, he's one of those dudes that I think deserves some respect, no matter what the out, the final output of a project is. Yeah. That I know that he's going to try to do the right thing in the making of a film, right? Now that'll probably still involve him hurling heavy objects at Bruce Campbell if he can, because he doesn't care about Bruce. <laughs> like Bruce can be abused, but everybody else <laughs> is going to get treated well. Have you ever, that was one book he, uh, Bruce Campbell uh, talked about in his book that during army of darkness, when he's getting pelted with all those potatoes, every single <laughs> one of those potatoes was thrown by Sam Raimi <laughs> <laughs> off screen. And he was just cackling the entire time because he gets to throw stuff at Bruce. But, so, I mean, like that, I think is a really cool part of this story is that he was able to sort of do some social good with a bit of that big Disney money. And, um, you know, so even if this this film is itself problematic, we know that it had some good effects on the other side. Um, you know, I guess his relationship with the Coens, uh, the Cohen brothers is also important. Um, they both come from Michigan. Uh the Coens, after seeing the success of the sort of crowdfunding that Sam Raimi did to make Evil Dead, they did the same thing for their first movie, Blood Simple, mm-hmm. which is also incredible. Like, mm-hmm. It's an amazing film. Um, they did the same thing for that. They lived together when they all moved out to California. They were living in the same house when they were putting their first projects together. Um, I think they were living in the same house when he made Darkman. I, I believe that was his living situation. They were all sharing a house in L.A. Um, when he made Dark Man, which is why Frances McDormand is in that movie because yeah. she was dating Ethan at the time, or Joel. I can't remember which one she's married. To. <laughs> they're but a unit. They, they were you dating. Talk about them. Yeah, I mean they're they're together. But so she was she was dating you know them, and and it's like well she's here, um she's she'll work for scale or whatever. <laughs> so we'll we'll get her in here, um you know so so they're you know interrelationships are, are very strong and, and apparently even are to this day. Um, but I, I think that his relationship with the Coens is probably one of the things that did give him a leg up over somebody like Toby Hooper, you know? Um, 
Although Toby Hooper had Steven Spielberg's ear for the first half of the 80s and apparently just... It's all about the choices you make. Kind of squandered that, yeah. So in any case, you know, he's he is the, the sort of ultimate indie filmmaker, right? Like, And I think it's it's fascinating to me that a guy who came up through this very unorthodox method. I mean, he didn't go to U, he didn't go to UC Berkeley. I mean, he didn't go mm-hmm. to USC film school. He didn't hang out and pal around with all those folks, which, I mean, not that any of those things are immediate indicators of success in the film industry. You can certainly go through all those programs and still not get work, but that's certainly the Avenue, right? I mean, like if you go to those places, you pay the money to be in those programs, you're going to get some FaceTime, at least get a shot. And he didn't do any of that, right? He came up literally, you know, I, I hate the phrase pull yourself up by your bootstraps because it's rarely accurate to what's happening. But in, in Sam Raimi's case, he's probably the closest to that that I can think of. He's very self-made. Um, I mean, yeah. Uh, in a modern sense, the only guys I can think are sort of doing the same thing now because they're working on the new Moon Knight show is Justin uh, Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who you know have this run of really good independent you know sort of horror thriller flicks. And then because they made synchronicity uh, with uh, Andy Mackey or uh, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, uh, the guy who played Falcon in the Avengers movies, they made a movie with him, and then now they're working on Marvel projects. So they've kind of come up, you know, in this interesting way too. But so that's sort of the landscape, I guess. You know, we don't have to necessarily cover all of the all of the pieces of the puzzle. But you know, Sam Raimi is a director that has had a very interesting fascinating career with incredible success. But then we get as a last project. I mean, many of us thought that this was maybe the last movie we'd ever get from him. So, I mean, to have him get attached to something like Dr. Strange was surprising. Um, but we get Oz, the great and powerful. So an origin story of very much wizard of Oz. Uh, it tells the story of Oscar Diggs, a sham shyster magician slash illusionist on the, carnival circuit um who likes to bed the ladies he likes to get in trouble Mm. who gets pulled away in a balloon to the magical land of oz tries to bed some ladies gets into a lot of trouble and then eventually winds up ruling the kingdom um what it I mean, in terms of origin stories, not that strange. Again, this is a really simple story. Like, it's yeah. very straightforward. Like, the beats of this are super obvious from the start, um, which I think is good because this is also a PG-rated film. Yeah. Uh, which is something I think has to be noted before we discuss it. Um, the idea of Sam Raimi making a PG-rated film is bewildering to me. <laughs> but also sort of exciting to see how a guy who's who the very DNA of his films are horror films. Even some of his is like more traditional, like, you know, I mean, Simple Plan's basically a horror movie at the end of the day. I mean, it's I mean, some terrible horror. things happened in that movie. I just they you, do, know, you don't you know? think you don't think family friendly, but Spider-Man was the the franchise that turned that around because people were taking their kids to see that i mean that was the revival of the let's make an action figure out of this even though you know it's not technically appropriate for children right um but it proved that he could be viable in the family movie market and i don't know if this 
really works. I think maybe it would have worked better if it was not PG. I don't know. Apparently the PG thing was Disney's mandate. They wanted it to be yeah. PG. I don't remember if Alice in Wonderland was. I imagine it was. I can't. I can't. I'm sure it was. In that movie. And well, I guess the Jabberwock gets his head. I can't off, think know, of but... anything in that movie, period. <laughs> it was terrible. I know, Johnny Depp gets real upset at one point. <laughs> it does a couple of bars from the Jabberwock poem. <sighs> um, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting mandate, but this is, I don't know, this is this weird time in at Disney. Um, the 2010s are sort of a, a new renaissance. We've got, you know, frozen hits and that just like blows everybody's mind and 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 you know they're they're really trying to get back into this like family friendly massive big budget engine just churning stuff out and and it's you know most of the stuff at this time was pretty successful this too was successful like i i guess that's the other thing we have to say is like this movie did fine yeah um was it alice in wonderland numbers no i have no idea how alice in wonderland made a billion dollars but somehow it fucking did and and it, but this made like 500 million on yeah. a two hundred million dollar budget, so I mean, it it made its money. It probably didn't make a ton, maybe fifty ish million, thirty eight, forty somewhere around in there, but that's still profitability for Disney. And, and then you've got home video sales, and you know all the stuff in perpetuity on top of that. So, so this was not a financial success, uh, you know, a financial failure. Uh, it was a pretty big critical failure. Critics did not care for it. It's it's very middle of the road. It's you know like forty five ish percent, forty seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the people who liked it basically sort of thought the performances were pretty good. Um, liked the visuals. Which this baffles a very good me. Looking movie. Saying the yeah, performances this, in this, I, are I good. yeah, I I don't know. I guess we'll we'll Ooh. get to that here in here in a minute. But but some people found them acceptable. Uh, I, Mila Kunis won the MTV Movie Award for oh my God. performance for her performance as the Wicked Witch of the West. Um, yeah, I I don't know. It's it's a real odd project, but it's a project that has a bunch of restrictions on it. Like restrictions that Sam Raimi, I'm sure, had, was aware of. I mean, Spider-Man would have had some too. It wasn't like Spider-Man was going to like rip a dude's head off or something. But but this is extreme, right? This is like from a tonal standpoint, hitting a PG in in 2013 is tough, right? Like you, if you're not an animated movie where there's basically no threat and everybody's fine at the end, you're not going to get a PG, right? It's it's tough, and so I can imagine Raimi maybe taking to that challenge a little bit, um, especially in terms of wanting to sort of redo The Wizard of Oz, which, of course, is like a G-rated film but by our standards today. You know, I mean, they get houses dropped on them and that stuff. That's not Yeah. But, but so this project, just right off the bat, was going to pose some interesting challenges for a filmmaker like Sam Raimi, even one as accomplished as him. So our, our wizard is played by James Franco, Apparently, uh, Robert Downey Jr. was the first choice. Um, Which would have been great. He he might have been able to pull this off. This is this is a surprisingly complicated character, and I don't want to make yeah. it seem like it's complicated in terms of of like what the movie's trying to do with the character. But the character is supposed to be this like lovable bad guy. Like he is not yeah. a good person, and is established. You love him, but you don't know why. Right. And, and, you know, if you look back at the original Wizard of Oz, it's sort of the same thing. He's like a spindly old grandpa who you can tell is a huge shyster, but at the same time, he's, you know, he, you kind of get it. And, and that's what this character is supposed to be, but as a much younger version of himself, that is, is sort of starting on this journey instead of finding its conclusion. 
So we've got James Franco. Um, we have Mila Kunis as Theodora, um, a good witch. We have, um, oh, what was her name? Uh, start with an E. Evanora. Mm -hmm. Basically her sister. Yeah, Evanora. Uh, Rachel Weiss's character. Yeah. Who, you know, all these characters we find out who they are for real. Uh, we've got Michelle Williams as Glinda the Good Witch, uh, Zach Braff as a flying monkey, which eh, that works. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, a whole host of, of people from Hollywood's you know, past. Um, again, Sam Raimi went deep for his casting on this. This also, uh, I mean, obviously we have um, Munchkin Land, so he's able to cast uh, a, a huge number of Little People actors, uh, Tony mm -hmm. Cox is in this. I mean, a lot of faces that if you've if you've watched Star Wars or Willow mm -hmm. or you know any of those films that you know had prominent uh, you know great actors in those roles, many of them show up again here. And so you can tell tell Sam Raimi was was anxious to to be able to work with some of those individuals in this context um, because unlike in the original Wizard of Oz, where those characters you know basically appear and then immediately disappear. Um, they're a sort of major component of the story being told here. But so our our wizard, he we get the same same treatment. We start the film in black and white, four by three, you know. Which I love. I, I really love that. Yeah, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's really cool. That transition was one of the most hallmarked or one of the most remarked things, uh, or remarkable things in the original Wizard of Oz. And the fact that he attempts to recreate it here is very cool. Um we do have to note that this film was shot during the 3d era and there mm -hmm. are some 3d things in this, um, that are not good. Um, no, but you know, I could also see Sam Raimi having some fun with that because horror and 3d have a, a long relationship with mm -hmm. each other. But again, the things from this era that were shot with 3d in mind do not read well on you know traditional 2d screens these days they the shots don't look good the cg that they used to create the effect is bad but this too was sort of a victim of a, a technology that was sort of in fad and vogue at the time i um, do love the opening credits though the opening credit sequence was really really cool, cool. Mm -hmm. they're cool um it's it's supposed to recreate sort of a i guess kind of a calliope sort of a mechanical you know something you might see in a carnival kind of thing and yeah it's everything in there with that and of course that's it's all cg so that i do remember the 3d of that i i think we did see this in 3d um i do remember the 3d of that being very good you know because it's all controlled and they can do whatever they want like avatar um so i i don't necessarily want to break this down scene by scene i don't necessarily yeah, it doesn't need that <laughs> um the story is again very simple but i do want to talk about the opening because the opening is where we establish you know, Raimi wants to get the same effect of having all of the characters that we see in Kansas or wherever be characters that we see, you know, in Oz, um, which of course was a, a huge part of the original um, Wizard of Oz, not necessarily as large a part of the, the books or the story of Wizard of Oz, but, you know, the, the visual telling of the tale that, you know, it, it leaves it up in the air that, oh, this is all a dream or it's all a product of, you know, the imagination, etc. And so we, we very quickly get introduced to the wizard. He's there. Zach Braff is his assistant or whatever, you know, crowd work guy at the carnival who helps him, 
you know, so that comes back. Um, he's, you know, trying to scam on this chick and he it establishes that he has these like I don't know how he would have afforded them, but he's got like dozens of these um, music boxes that he uses <laughs> to entice women. He says, "Oh, this is my grandmother's, and now it's yours, and we'll be together forever." I mean, that all this, was funny. This stuff. That, that was, yeah, that was fine. That was funny. But, eh. <laughs> but the one thing I really wanted to get to was um, Michelle Williams appears in this yeah. scene, who of course plays Glenda, and and what did you think of the reveal of? Uh, oh, I guess we're in spoilers now, I guess I should say. Like, again, I don't know if this is a movie that can be spoiled because it's so straightforward, but um, it's it's revealed that she is getting, she she had known Oscar in the past, and now she's getting married to a man with the last name of, of Gail. Yeah, it's clearly um, Dorothy's parents. It's supposed to be Dorothy's mom and parents. Who then and, end and up dying later. <laughs> do. But I, I think there's also a potential insinuation here that the Wizard of Oz is her father is actually her dad. Um, they don't go as far as to say that because that would be infidelity and that might not get you a PG rating. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's it seems insinuated that perhaps she's already pregnant and she's settling down, leaving Oscar behind um, for this small town Kansas man who's going to take good care of her. And, and, and yes, thus insinuating that, that Dorothy is his daughter, which, I mean, I won't say in the original Wizard of Oz, he like knows her immediately when she sits down, he's like, oh, you know, Dorothy Gale, you know, like, or, or whatever. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't care, but it's just, it's such a weird thing to throw in here. Um, and it's, and it just smacks of, of really what we were seeing out of prequels at this time, just endless prequels explaining every connection here's how i mean the the connection of this to like you know revenge of the sith is undeniable (laughs) right it's just like they're doing the same things yeah um you know because there was that time in hollywood they're like oh this is what people want people want to have all of the connections in the films that they love explained in excruciating detail like, do you want to know where Boba Fett's from? <laughs> well, let me tell you. You know, it's like that kind of thing. It's like, well, no, I didn't really need to know that. I mean, it's cool. His dad's name is Django, I guess. But let's it's move just, on, shall it's we? It's the kind of thing that even if you even if you were to be entertained by it in the moment, it immediately becomes cringe if you ever see it again. <laughs> right. Like it's like, oh, that's cool. And oh. then, oh, that sucks. I hate that. <laughs> Um, so the wizard, of course, he get you know, we know what happens. We know how he got to Oz. He tells us in the movie, his balloon, he's escaping. If he's been philandering, of course, he escapes a, a circus strongman who wants to kill him by hopping in his balloon or in a balloon. It's not even his balloon. And then he gets caught up in a, a twister and that, you know, sends him to Oz and, and the twister scene, I must say is good. The twister really scene cool. in the original wizard of Oz is, is iconic at this yeah. point, very early, very good special effects and visual effects. And it was, it was scary. I mean, I, I actually grew up watching the wizard of Oz a lot. That was mm-hmm. one that I don't know, our, our grandparents had it and I watched it nearly every time I was at their house that and Fantasia um, yeah. and other Another movies that they had on, on VHS. Uh, so I, I have 
an enormous affection for The Wizard of Oz. I just, it was a magical movie to me, even though I had seen, I mean, I, you know, I, I was born in the 80s, so I, I've seen movies that looked better and mm -hmm. were better made. Um, and I was still just wowed by The Wizard of Oz. So it's, I get that whole, you know, wanting to capture something special that that movie had. And it gets pretty close because the, the twister was really cool. It was done, you mm -hmm. know, differently. He made it look a little more modern, but I kind of like that it didn't look perfect. It wasn't trying to look realistic. Um, It was still very much, you know, fantasy tornado, if there can be such a thing. Yeah, and that's one thing about Raimi and his approach to this film that I think does work because he was paired with the same like art director and, and I think production designer that did the Alice movie. Like if that wasn't obvious, Disney was going to make it obvious. Like, hey, we've got this guy. He if just you did like this movie. Alice. <laughs> hey, you know. So, I mean, there's certainly some similarities there. The movie, the worlds look very different. Like I'm not going to argue that, oh, they were just copying each other. I mean, it's Oz is its own place, but it, the approach is the same. Yeah. Green screen actor, big, luscious CG backgrounds, right? Like that's it. Although apparently Raimi did insist on a lot of practical sets and then doing extensions he was not comfortable like just walls of green screen and a green screen hill and a green screen box you know like he, he wanted like physical stuff there that they could interact with so that was probably one difference over the burton approach because apparently burton is all just stick him in a room with a green screen and i'll do the rest kind of thing use your imagination <laughs> yeah look at the tennis ball at the monster um and and so he, I, I, I agree. I think the, 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 the scene of the balloon up until you know his landing in Oz, all of that stuff kind of works, and we get the first little bit of Raimi, typical filmmaking in the balloon as well. You know, we get the the flipping Dutch angles, the crash the, zooms, the snap zooms. I love it. Yeah, I mean, like everything's you know, it's it's they're very like hallmark. And he does them in everything. He did them in Spider-Man too. You know, it's his style. Spider-Man films. It's just what he does. It's how he, you know, it's it's that again. If we want to say like the comic book style, it's that that quick zoom panel on an on a character's face with a shock yeah. expression, like you know, and and that kind of thing. It's it's just it's a very visual way to represent that kind of emotion, and he does it a lot. And so we get those here, and I really love that kind of stuff. And then even when he lands in Oz, and we get our first like action sequence, was he's like you know going through the mountains and the balloon crashes and all that stuff. Um, I, I think all of that works. Like it's it's all fine. Um, but my issue is is James Franco. Yep. Um, and and almost all of my issues with this film come down to cast. Yeah. Um. I don't again, understand why anyone that was in this mm. movie was in this movie. The stars. Yeah, the, the big stars. Uh, Franco was third choice. Again, Robert Downey Jr. was originally in the, the running to do it, but backed out probably because of his commitments to Iron Man. Um, I imagine because the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like Avengers, would have been filming right around this time. So I imagine I like, most of that stuff was ramping up. I feel like Downey's age would have been better yeah, because um, Franco's a bit too young for this. Yeah, and and it may just be that even if he were older, his face reads young, and his his manner reads young. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just I don't I didn't buy him as the the carnival huckster. I just didn't. 
And I'm not sure, I'm not sure what he could have done to make that better. I feel like it's just, I, I don't believe you. I believe him as, um, a villain in a Spider-Man movie. Like I believed him there. Right. And I think that's why he's in this is Raimi had worked with him before. I, you know, obviously they went through Downey, uh, Jr. And then they approached Depp, of course, because, oh, I'm so glad that didn't happen. Like, I yeah, love that you, would Johnny have been Depp. intolerable. I, you know, I, nothing against him. He was in the pirate movies. I love the pirate movies. Pirate movies. Good. (laughs) Whatever the Um, hell they were called. (laughs) But since Johnny Depp adopted the method acting of putting face masks on and then dancing around and doing a jig for a few hours, it's, it's been dicey. And I I don't think Johnny Depp would have been good for this. Um, But apparently, I mean, it's obvious that you know, Franco and Raimi had worked together before. Raimi's like, just, you know, get the Franco and and he can do it. Um, but a lot of it comes down to presence. Like it just, yeah. if you are this carnival huckster, you have to believe that you're successful because your, your energy, right? Your charisma is so off the charts that people ignore the obvious signs that you are full of shit. And there's nothing that Franco does that does anything to communicate that he is not immediately full of shit. Yeah. And so what that what that makes the characters like Theodora, not so much Evanora because she kind of sees through it, of course, but all of the other characters, right, is that it just makes them look stupid. Yeah. Because they can't see that this guy has no idea what he's doing. He has a literal shit eating grin through the whole yeah. movie. This is the 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 quintessential shit eating grin. And it, it it really comes down to that that balance of charisma and and sort of intolerable disgust, right? And the movie just does he doesn't bring it yeah. in that regard. Now I will say, um, apparently James Franco's father passed away while he was making this, and so there's nothing in the film to indicate that. Like there's no like great shift, but it might explain where his, why his focus was a little off. Cause I don't generally think of James Franco as a, as a bad actor. I don't like him in most of the projects that yeah. he's done, but he obviously has, he obviously has something that works for, for somebody. Right. Um, now, I mean, we're not going to necessarily get into, I mean, now apparently he's just a huge sex pest and has caused all kinds of problems to the point that even Seth Rogen's like, I'm done working with you, which if it seems to, I have no idea, but it seems like to get Seth Rogen to say, I'm not going to work with you anymore. That what seems like you you've done? got a, what have you done, James Franco? Like if Seth Rogen is like, oh, you've, you've crossed the line, sir. Uh, what, what it happened. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to get into that or, or anything like, yeah, we're, it's, you know, we're not going to affect dissect his personal life or anything, but it, that, that was something that happened. And apparently he was gone for massive chunks of time. Um, so they may not have had time with him to do lots of takes or, you know, try different, you know, approaches to scenes. Um, apparently Rachel uh, Weiss was gone for a huge chunk of this filming a Bourne movie or something. Um, and it, it, so apparently there were, there may have been a lot of like stuff that would have been able to develop organically if these actors had been around and they weren't. So that could be an issue too. It's, it's hard to say those kinds of, of production problems can certainly render a film where you're trying to do something complicated with a character, they can sort of knock all that stuff off the table um, over the course of a two hour film. So 
So there were some things there, but ultimately I just, I don't think he's right for this. I, I, I think you're right. He needs to be a little bit older or at least read a little bit older. Um, and then just some kind of, of just unwieldy amounts of charm. Yeah. That he's able to, to sort of throw, but he doesn't really have that. And when he goes into his like huckster persona, he's like, I am the, I'm like, whoa, like, yeah. no, like, no. And he does it right in front of people. Like he'll go from being like, oh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm Oz, you know, whatever. Like, Whoa. Like, dude, just, it doesn't work. Like it just yeah. doesn't work for me. Um, again, it's a, it's a children's movie. So maybe Raimi had that in the back of his head. Like we've got to make sure this is really obvious to kids that he doesn't know what he's doing so that they can kind of get the point of this. But at the um, same time, you know, the, the original Wizard of Oz it was very obvious that the Wizard of Oz was not who he said right. he was. And yeah. I was a kid when I saw that. Like, I was a very little kid. And I was like, oh, he's just a liar. Um, yeah, but like I still liked him anyway. Right. Um, and, and that's the piece that I think that's just missing here. Yeah. That likability maybe um, just isn't there. And maybe it's Franco's, you know, particular approach to the character. Maybe it's just his face. I, it's I his don't face. Know. It's um, face. It just doesn't, it doesn't land. Um, and, and it's not for lack of trying. I mean, they're trying. Yeah. Like he's, he's the, the script is, is okay. It's a little on the nose at points, um, more so than it would need to be, I guess. But so he lands in Oz. I mean, we, you know, Franco is, is his own set of issues in this film and I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but so he lands in Oz and the first person he meets, Quinky Dink, uh, is Theodora, this, this young witch played by Mila Kunis. And there's so much like 30s, like Hedy Lamar stuff going on with her. I mean, she's almost in like a riding outfit, like white shirt, leather pants. And she's got this crazy red hat. Um, like it's it just the the first few shots of her are supposed to be these like 30s bombshell shots. Right. I mean, that's that's way the way I read them anyway. And. I again, I don't know what they're trying to do but she's so innocent i like she's it makes no sense she seems like, dumb she she's seems dumb. like she's like, dumb yeah, she, and lost and it's like why is she here like what was she yeah. doing before this moment that was the thing that popped into my head i was like what is she doing out here what was what was she doing in the forest was she just standing there because she kind of looks like she doesn't know where she is or how she yeah. got there <laughs> i mean like he he had yelled because he lands in the water we, we're told many times that he can't swim which of course comes up later um but when he lands he yells and then she just emerges from the forest and we're not really given a justification of what but she immediately when he says his name she's like the prophecy is true Right. And then we get basically like an exposition dump that, oh, all these things have happened. Everything's terrible. But the former king, the one who died, he told us that this guy named Oz was going to fall out of the sky and that he would be able to save us all. Okay. Uh, all right. I, that was I guess. really fast. Yeah, and I, mean, all just... I, I guess the Wizard of Oz was fast like that. I guess. A bit, but it. Yeah, I mean, in, in Glinda's scene, she kind of comes in. She's like, 
But at the same time, the setup in The Wizard of Oz was, it almost demanded some urgency because the house fell on the witch. And that was like, oh shit, like we gotta, we have to tell you everything because you just killed the witch. And I mean, in Glinda the, I mean, she's, she's set up, I mean, at this, at that point in that story, Glinda the Good Witch is like all powerful, right? Like she floats down out of the sky, out of a bubble. Out of a freaking bubble, dude. It's like, (laughs) I buy that you know what's going on. Yeah. Whereas this girl in the weird hat that kind of walked out of the forest, I don't know why I'm supposed to believe you in regards to all these things. I think it would have been much better for him to meet the monkey. Yeah. And then have the monkey be like, oh, I think I heard about a prophecy like that once. Somebody was talking about that when I was bell hopping for so-and-so or whatever. And then he puts him on the path to the Emerald City. And then, I mean, because the other thing that's worth noting here is he, he meets this innocent, stupid, easily manipulated girl. And then he gets down on that business immediately. Yeah. Right. Like the implication is that they bone down like right there that night. And then like from that point on, Theodora is in love. Right. We're going to be together forever. And he's all like, oh, well, uh, oh, um, I, uh, mm, and I guess you know, it's because, like because <laughs> okay. because it has to maintain a PG rating, there's no chance for the audience to sort of experience the the heat of that romance that it would land that she feels that way i guess you know we just have this one little dance scene that's honestly really awkward and then the next day she's like we're in love so it it ends up just not making sense to us either so we don't really understand i mean i guess we side with him being like wow she's crazy but we're not supposed to feel that way i think we're supposed to feel bad for her I, yeah, I mean, like he's manipulating her, and I mean, part of this story is him sort of finally accepting responsibility for things, like at least somewhat. Um, so maybe this is all supposed to be a part of that, but I mean, like the road that he sets her on is the road that creates the wicked witch of the west. Like mm-hmm. that's like her heartbrokenness over feeling manipulated by him, because as soon as he meets Evanora, he's like, whoa. And then as soon as he meets Glinda, who looks exactly like the woman he left behind that became Dorothy Gale's mother, he's like, forget all you all, all you dark haired ladies. No, thank you. I'm going with Blondie over here. Yeah. And it's like, uh, th- I mean, that's just, I understand he's like a, he's a bad guy, but like, whoa, calm down, man. Yeah, this, this was fast. <laughs> <laughs> like, even for James a, Franco, this is fast. <laughs> even for James Franco, this is pretty quick. A noted sex <laughs> Um Yeah, it's just it's it all happens very quickly, and he doesn't seem to contemplate the that at all. You know, I guess the monkey does a few times. He's the monkey a few times. Like, whoa, man, <laughs> calm down. Um, but yeah, it's it's very. It, it, I don't know. It, he needs to be more likable for us to not look at that stuff and be like, Ugh. um, and and it's and he's just not. He just isn't. And and so the it really does cause some issues. But so we find out that Evanora has been in control of the Emerald City since the king's death as kind of his regent or whatever. Theodora is her sister, and um she is already like horrifically scarred or something, but she's hiding it with some kind of magical pendant. But Theodora is okay, supposedly. Like she's more normal. 
which I guess she's is in keeping good. with the books a little bit, you know, because the there is like backstory to to them and and sort of what had happened to them over the kind of, of them growing up and their their stuff with the king. I mean, yeah, not not exactly, but there's there's some stuff there. Um, there's some some threat you know there's obviously like some creatures i mean we've we've got a lot of creatures in the the wizard of oz lore that we need to sort of see including the flying monkeys which again is played here by zach braff and his continuing role as his assistant um we do get a cowardly lion introduction and and theoretically it's his interaction with the wizard that makes him cowardly right is that the implication that you got to kind of yeah yeah because he throws down like a smoke bomb and then it scares spooks the lion. The and then it spooks it. And then, you know, like they think the monkey says, ah, oh, that lion's more of a coward than I thought or whatever. So I think yeah. the implication is we're also seeing the origin of that. And and I like that Raimi doesn't like ding, ding, ding on all that stuff. He just kind of lets those moments play for the most part. He doesn't linger on them. Whereas I think in a movie like Solo, that's part of its issue is that it lingers on those moments, right? It doesn't just let them breathe and live and sort of keep moving. It's like, Huh, don't have any family, eh? Han Solo. <laughs> and then we, you know, hold for a beat, cut to Alden Ehrenreich's face and be like, scrunched up face, and then cut. You know, it's like, uh, you don't have to hold on it. We get it, right? Just just keep moving. Um, but, you know, so in any case, it's it's sort of, you know, progressing. Uh, but I, I don't know. The setup for this feels weird. They immediately find the yellow brick road. There's a complement of of people waiting for them. So there's a piece of me that's like, okay, did they know he was coming? Did they see the balloon? And they kind of sent out this entourage, and that's how Theodore found him. Like, there's just all these a lot of unanswered it, questions. Right. It just it. If it's Raimi trying to be like, this is all a dream and, and this is all happening inside the wizard's head as he's dying in a tornado or something, <laughs> then okay, that makes sense. But there's just a lot of stuff that seems set up and 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 it for a movie that's so desperate to recreate some of the feelings of the original Wizard of Oz, I'm just surprised there isn't more of a journey to get to the Emerald City. Yeah. Right. Like even if it's 10 minutes. But I mean, he doesn't actually get into Oz. Until, I mean, it's the 20 minute mark when he gets to Oz. Like the first 20 minutes of this movie are black and white four by three in Kansas with the wizard, mm -hmm. which is, it's like 40 minutes in the original Wizard of Oz, isn't it? There's a long a, time before she gets there. a long time before she gets to Oz. So you can tell they're trying to sort of do that. But 20 minutes is also like, you know, your first, you know, your first like major not act necessarily in a film that's this long, but it's your first major beat, like first major sequence is 20 minutes. Um, so, I mean, we've, we've, we've spent a long time there, but it just seems like we're moving very quickly. And, and I mean, cause the nice thing about journeys and, and road movies, if you want to call them that is that they give you lots of time for exposition that you can develop naturally as the characters see things and ask questions. And this movie just rolls right past them, right? It's like, well, ask a question. What is this? What's going on here? Who are you? Right? Like, <laughs> who basic, are you? <laughs> who are you? Right? Oh, I'm a witch. Uh, no, you're not. Yes, I am. Explain. Right? Like, yeah. you know, like there's there's moments and opportunities here where these characters could be growing and deepening, and they just it's not happening. And again, maybe that's because the backstory is too dark, and they want to hide it. 
because kids, uh, it's it's hard to say, but there's or definitely if like they had that many legal concerns, they may just have not been able to say anything. I mean, maybe it was just true. not worth developing those things for fear of stepping on the original film. Right. I mean, I, does anybody ever get called the Wicked Witch of the West in this? Yes. I don't think they do. Or no, not do in they? this. Not in this. Yeah. I was. I don't think they do. Um, because I mean, theoretically that would trample on something from the original films. So they're called witches and wicked witches and all that stuff, but they're not called, you know, those specific things. We know who that, that's who they are, but they're not referred to in that manner. Um, so yeah, I mean, once we get to the Emerald City, things progress a little bit faster. I suppose Evanora and Theodora have a few moments together. What did you think of, of Evanora's look? Um, again, there's a lot of like classic Hollywood 30s and 40s stuff going on in this well, movie. Um, I, but... I loved her costuming a lot mm -hmm. more than Mila Kunis. I didn't understand the leather pants or the big hat. I mean, it's a look, but it just didn't really fit with the moment, I guess. Um, yeah. It felt very out of place for this kind of fantasy setting. And maybe that was the point, but it just didn't work for me. Um, Rachel Weiss is beautiful. She's so beautiful. Oh, yeah. I mean. Um, and I'm so sweet on her because she was in The Mummy, and The Mummy is one of mm -hmm. the greatest movies ever made. And I just, the I'll first always. The Mummy movies are so good. Yeah. I'll always just kind of low-key be in love with her. Um, so she looks beautiful. But there, something's missing. I don't know. One thing I think for me is there's a kind of a lack of consistency to the costuming in Oz. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, granted, when we get to the Emerald City in the original film, there it's it's nuts, right? I mean, yeah. there's just all kinds of stuff, you know. But with these main characters, I mean, costume and character in film go together. Yeah, what a character wears and how they present themselves is a is one of the major ways that we learn about who they are. So Theodora, the big hat, implies she's shy; she hides her face. But the red but yeah, and black. But the red and black communicates this entire other idea. Now, if it's Raimi and the costume department saying, "Like we know where this is going, we know who she's going to become," so we wanted her to to look a little dangerous, there would be some threat or something, maybe, or. But I, I really would have wanted to see some telltale hallmarks of who she would become. Yeah. Right? Now, I think the big hat is supposed to be she's going to get the big pointy hat. Yeah. Right? So that's like part of it. But it doesn't read like that. Like it doesn't come across that way because it's very ornately curved. It frames her face in this really specific way. You know, I almost would have seen. I wanted to see some more consistency, so that when they're when she does eventually transform into what we would know as the Wicked Witch of the West, that we would have seen those hallmark signals in her costuming up until that point of what she would become. Yeah. Because her Wicked Witch costume is totally out of left field, and it's nothing like the original either. Um, right. Because Mila Kunis is young and pretty and hot, and so we can't well, just and, put her in a long black robe. And a lot of of the Wizard of Oz. They were going for costumes that were very inspired by the kind of 1910s, almost prairie dresses with the really high necks. And it just, it was a totally different look. And yeah, mm -hmm. you know, the, the actress who played the Wicked Witch, very, very different 
different vibe. And apparently there were restrictions on what the Wicked Witch could look like, even down to the color of green used for her skin. Yeah. They could not mirror that color and they couldn't use her her very famous chin wart. Like, yeah, they couldn't couldn't make her look like Margaret Hamilton in any way. In any way. So, I mean, like, that's a restriction of itself. So I I get that. And I I understand, like, you've got to sort of build for your movie, but still have some enough callbacks that people know who you're talking about. Right. right? I get it. Um, But it's it's just the costuming for this is a little scattershot. It's a little it's a little off. It's most underwhelming Um, that I, I would hope for a little bit more excitement from scene to scene, from character to character, just. I don't know. I wanted something more, um, especially since, you know, we have a protagonist that is a man <laughs> and a he's going to be wearing a black suit. He's going to be dressed yeah. in the just most boring fashions possible. And he doesn't change throughout the whole film. It would have been nice to see, you know, these female characters have, you know, that great kind of grand look to them. If right. that's just how I feel. They don't have to look like Barbie dolls or anything, but no, it would have been no, cool to just have that. a little bit more grandeur, especially since Oz was, it's supposed to be such an impressive location. It's supposed to be right. very grand in appearance. And then, I don't know, they just don't feel like they, they match with the, the surrounding impressiveness of that set. Yeah, it just it doesn't feel like it hangs with everything either in terms of color or in terms of its its grandeur. And I think that's a good word for it. Yeah. It's grandeur. Um it doesn't have that. I mean, because a movie like this should be sumptuous to yeah. look at. Right? I mean, and and there are certainly elements that are, but much of it is fairly pedestrian, especially by like 2013 special effects standards. So one thing that you can do, and maybe this is the secret sauce that Tim Burton had because he always works with Colleen Atwood. Yeah. Is, I mean, Colleen Atwood is like the best costume designer in the world. And when you task her to do something, she will exceed your expectations. Yeah. Well beyond. Because one, I mean, I, I honestly think that's one of the reasons why that Alice movie did so well is that it, like the costume design, the character designs in that looked good yeah because nothing nothing good or or watchable happened in that time span (laughs) but it sure looked good yeah the suit of armor she wears at the end is beautiful yeah i mean an armor is not easy to make and it it looks good um anne hathaway even though it you know even though it's anne hathaway it's yeah it's (laughs) anne hathaway but you know her dress as the the white queen and whatever is really cool all the costuming for helena bonham carter looks really good like it's Maybe that's the special sauce that was sort of missing from this. Because one thing Colleen Atwood does, uh, you know, and, and great costume designers do, is is make sure that the costumes fit with the entire vision. Yeah. And maybe because this was all built after the fact, right? Maybe because all of the, the background renders and the, the scenes, maybe because so much of that was CG, they, they didn't have all that information. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, they're just, they're, they're underwhelming, especially because, you know, I, I kind of thought that once the wizard got to Oz and he was introduced to all of the opulence that he now had access to that he would I don't know change clothes yeah um, well I mean they, ha- they like what happened to We've Dorothy because I keep thinking yeah. back to that moment when Dorothy got her her makeover and how even though she looked the same she was still wearing similar clothes mm-hmm. it was just a little bit nicer like her hair just was nicer heightened. yeah it was just heightened yeah. um 
And, you know, I'm even he even thinking has that of line like, where he says his favorite color is green. I'm like, why don't you yeah. put him in a green suit? Yeah. But like, put him in a green suit. I'm thinking back to Return to Oz of all things and how they did Princess Mombi in her costumes mm. and just how crazy good those costumes were for such a, sure. a low budget, like, honestly, <laughs> mostly yeah. forgettable movie for a lot of people. I was sort of hoping to see at least Evanora look more like that. Yeah, I I think that that's a reasonable expectation for sure. Um, there are some things I really like, right? So one of the things I think the movie does execute very well in terms of the wizard is that he uses what amounts to basically very simple tools and technology from our world that yeah. don't exist in Oz to solve problems, right? So he has, for example, a jackknife. And that jackknife with its little bit of tools is more than, I mean, is, is just able to get him out of situations that he wouldn't normally get into. Um, when he meets the China doll girl, which I thought was nice. That's one of the more original additions to this. And, um, and this was and my favorite, back. this was my favorite plant and payoff with the glue. Um, yes. And that's, that was the scene I was really going to talk about was yeah. the, the glue. Yeah. So you go ahead. Uh, well, you know, he had the the zoetrope in the beginning that was that was broken in his trailer back in Kansas, and he it's not even addressed, it's not talked about. He just walks up to it, it's all visual, pulls out the glue, fixes it, um, and moves on. And he's talking about something you know completely different while all of this is happening. And it was just a nice little touch. And then when he they get to the the. Uh, the broken Chinatown, <laughs> just such a stupid, <laughs> so stupid Chinatown. Yeah. Um, well, it's Chinatown. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when he finds her and she's broken, of course, you know, at first you think back to the, the girl who couldn't walk at his right. carnival show. And, and and it's the same actress doing the voice. Yeah, Joey King. King. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of get like, oh, he's going to help her walk again. Isn't that nice? And it is nice, but the best part is that he pulls out the glue to fix her legs. And it's just yep. something he had with him. So small, but I just, I love a buried gun like that. I just, <laughs> that was so perfect. <laughs> yeah. And, and this movie is, I mean, again, Sam Raimi is an incredibly skillful director and nothing he does is, is a, is a, a failure in the traditional sense, right? This is, is one of his more odd projects that I don't think really works as a single unit, but these moments that Raimi can construct inside of them are brilliant, right? Like this is what he does. And one of the things that I, I really like about this is that, you know, I mean, much like with the original and all of our characters, we see them again in their various forms, but I, I like that it's, Eventually, as it comes down to the end, it really is about his the basic ingenuity of being an illusionist and magician and building traps and figuring out illusions and figuring out how things work. Like that's that's what he's good at, and that's what he's able to embrace. And I think it's really in the China doll scene that we see the first bit of essential humanity that the yeah. wizard has to have. Like the first that's the first moment in the film where I remembered being like, okay, this guy's actually a good guy. Yeah. And and I'm like but we're 50 minutes in. Yeah. This, this is movie before I felt that way. <laughs> That's probably not great. And the risk that you run is that your audience 
won't believe it. That they're they're just yeah, not going to believe like this isn't a good person. Um, because I kind of didn't. <laughs> I was like, well, uh, I mean, this is sweet, but uh, is it real? Um, but yeah, this this was the the another like you know Sam Raimi moment that that excited me. Right. You know, unfortunately it gets followed up immediately with him trying to ditch the little China girl. Yes. Away. And, um, and the which character again, of the China doll is, is a bit cringe too. I mean, a lot yes. of that interaction is just, it's, it's very, this is a Disney movie. We have to have these goofy things in them. Um, right. Our, the, the toyetic nature of film property. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's also, I mean, they don't really talk about it because PG rating, but this is a horrifying scene that these stumbled into with Chinatown. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an apocalypse. Yeah, like she's I mean, the it's... only survivor of this town right. that was previously it's... full of living creatures. <laughs> right. And now they're just reduced to to rubble. Yeah. Right? And um, which I mean, again, is supposed it's supposed to be because we're we're building the threat of. Evanora, even though we don't know it's her just yet, but we're we're building her as a unbelievably dangerous and vicious person, um, you know, so that we have that. But yeah, it's it's a terrifying sequence, um, and we're headed to a few more. Honestly, uh, we get the Doctor Octopus arm plants <laughs> in the next scene where they are sort of uh, we get the 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 Raimi cam of it, you know, flying into their faces and. Yeah. And all of that. I mean, it's 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 really it's a traditional sort of Sam Raimi horror scene when they get to the woods and and um you know hunt down and find oh I guess it's it's where they meet Glinda but they they think she's dangerous and she's really not. Um. So let's let's talk about Michelle Williams. Um, because Michelle Williams is a great actress, like truly. She great. is. Um, like a whole other level than anybody else in this movie. Great. She was in a film that we will never talk about on this podcast because it's a great movie. I don't care what anybody says um, called me without you, which is honestly one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. And, and it's mostly due to just her performance. And she was really young when she made that movie. So like she's, she is an incredible actress. Yeah. But is she incredible in this? Uh, no, no, <laughs> Uh, no, uh, it's, it's not really her fault. Um, again, Glinda, the good witch and her behavior and character have been somewhat established yeah. by the, the original Wizard of Oz, which Sam Raimi is very much trying to be in step with. He is, is he can't recreate, he can't exactly mimic, but Glinda is this sort of like airy, floaty, calming, quiet and her voice, her voice is such a huge part of that. And her presence is such a huge part of that. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would hope that if you've, if you've ever seen the Wizard of Oz, you can, you can just immediately hear Glinda's voice in your head and how she talks to Dorothy when she meets her. And that's a, that's hard to follow up with. All of these characters are so hard to recreate in any way. Right. Because they were, they were larger than life. Yeah. In that film. And they were allowed to be. I mean, there was no precedent for them. You weren't trying to sort of hang with anything. Right. It was like, well, she's this fairy godmother witch character. What's she going to sound like? And then we're also dealing with 
I mean, one of the things that I think the movie could have leaned into a little bit, probably not much, is that, you know, the original Wizard of Oz is a product of the, the transatlantic accent in Hollywood as well. Oh, we're going to do this, Dorothy, right? Isn't that where we're headed? Oh, goodness. We've got to pull this off. Right. And and the movie, this movie kind of could have benefited from a little bit of that hamminess that we now associate with that kind of accent to film. That's kind of approach to film acting. And and in some ways, I feel like Raimi's trying to get there a little bit. But yet, you know, just the constraints of modern filmmaking, we just we yeah. don't talk in those rhythms anymore. We don't address things in that way. But they sort of subtly served to reinforce kind of what was going on with that movie. And and so we can't really do that here. But in any case, I, I would have liked to see a bit more of that in, in maybe the wizard at least, right? A little bit more of that that character. Um, but our you know, in terms of the story, we're trying to move forward. We're all of the pieces are in play now. They've met Glinda. They know she's not a threat. And now, like everything's kind of in place, and we get a real understanding of what's going on. That Evanor is actually the bad guy. Theodora is working with her, and people are actually afraid of her. And then, you know, Evanora convinces Theodora that they're all being played, that the wizard is is actually bad, and and with her broken heart, feeds her a poison apple. Which again, precedent, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and turns her into uh, a a monster. And mm-hmm. and we get, I mean, there's some good shots in there. Like once once she gets angry, she like bleeds from the eyes. Just like that's a little. Um, dark. Well, it's it's well, it, it's her tears. It's water. That's what melts. Her. Oh right, it's so water it's scarring it her. her face. Yeah, that's uh, which right. I really that's right. like. That's cool. I yeah. I don't love. <laughs> I admit, I got a little bit tired of the pretty girls versus ugly hags, and and that reinforcement <laughs> yeah. of yeah. you're so pretty, so you you must be loved and well liked, and and I I know a lot of people have a lot of opinions about Margaret Hamilton's face. She was actually a lovely woman. Mm-hmm. She was not oh. ugly. Um, she played one of the ugliest, most iconic, ugly women of all time. Um, but she was not ugly. And I, I kind of hate that we put so much into goodness being tied to physical beauty. And that was one of the problems that the 1939 film leaned into because it was the 30s. And it... It's a shame that that survived in this movie. It would have been nice not to have that reinforced so much in this script that pretty people are also good people. <laughs> and once you are not a good person, you will no longer be pretty because they even do it with with Evanora. She's not actually beautiful. She's actually ugly and her beauty is a spell. Her and that's spell. that's just that's not a message that Disney should be sending to kids. At this point, yeah. I mean, it's it's short-sighted. Um, we also get, uh, I guess, our first indication of Glinda's powers, which she can sort of like conjure mist and smoke, which becomes important for later. Um, we also get some flying by bubble, which is fun. You know, you can tell they yeah. were... And... and 
we get the scene that as they're flying through the bubbles, she what does she say? Like all good-hearted souls get to pass through this protective, this protective bubble around whatever it is. And, and he panics. He panics like I'm gonna die because I'm not good. And then it does take so, a while before he breaks through, which I thought was nice. Exactly. Like he actually is a good person, but it's it's rough around the edges. Yeah. Right. Like all of us. And I mean, so these visuals are all fine. Again, you know, we get our, our first little glimpse of Munchkin land and the people that Glenda protects and, you know, the wizard endears himself to them almost immediately. And then, you know, the witch converts. We meet all the, well, we do meet all the tinkers, which of course become very, very important for later because they become his his army of builders to make all of his illusions and bill cobbs and, is and those there, are all and i'm always happy to see bill cobbs love him yes i mean if anything i think the side actors in this film like the the supporting yeah. cast are cast better than the leads yeah right almost as if like Raimi didn't have full control of who the leads could be which i don't think is true i mean directors always have final say in that because they've got to work with them but it almost feels like he was able to really pick and choose all the supporting cast, get everybody he wanted, right? I want this guy, I want this guy, I want this person, I want this lady, I want these people. And then with his leads, he's like, oh, Michelle Williams? I don't know what to do with her. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I got nothing. And it's it's just really strange because that those members of the cast, and as I rewatched it, it was seeing those people that made me happy. I was like, yes, all right, that guy's great. And, you know, it's it's just sort of an odd thing for a movie of this budget to have the leads be so sort of non-interesting, but then the, the full supporting cast is really cool. Um, once we start seeing the scope of the witch's powers and stuff, I think some of those special effects are fine. You know, unfortunately, we do get back into this, like, explodey, you know, everything's on fire kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. which is not, not always ideal, but, but what about the reveal of, of uh, the witch Mila Kunis's reveal, right? Cause like they're, they're in Munchkin land, this giant, almost like a meteor. It looks like sort of flies through. Of course, we're told early on that one of Theodora's unique abilities is that she can create fire. Uh, it's not something that everybody can do. So, it seems like they are trying to like, you know, Glinda can make like mist and bubbles and air related <laughs> stuff. And then like the Wicked Witch of the West is all about fire and flame and burning. Right. Because she burns. Right. Yeah. Um, I... But what about her reveal? I really, really don't like Mila Kunis's vocal performance. I really don't like it. It's yeah. it's bad. And and I yeah. know it there's a lot there's again, we keep coming back to this idea, a lot to live up to. Margaret Hamilton was a boss. She was just awesome. Her cackle was amazing. Her voice was amazing. She was scary and yet kind of funny at the same time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that would that's just it just didn't happen. It didn't come together here. Um the makeup was also rough it, it was it was rough it looks more more this is a latex thing glued to my face than i think anyone could have anticipated 
Yeah, and apparently Mila Kunis was it was it was a long application process, and apparently her skin did not react well to it at all, um, and it, it ended up being very painful for her to to wear. Um, I, I loved the green skin like, that looked great. The skin itself looked fine. This this feels very much of like because apparently, and I, I apparently the the paint that James Gunn perfected for the various skin colors in Guardians of the Galaxy has now become the de facto way to do painted skin. Um, that was not done at the time that they filmed this, and and apparently that stuff is is it's like water soluble you can just wash it off it doesn't do much damage it's it's very breathable so you're not like sweating and and you know clogging your pores up but apparently like it's it's pretty rough but it but it looks pretty it does look good right yeah. and especially given that they couldn't like get the exact shade but i i don't like that they sexied it up yeah with like a corset with like weird crow feathers on the shoulders and stuff i mean it doesn't look bad but it that, but she also has like a neck piece, yeah. Which is probably because they couldn't they couldn't do her neck successfully and not have like folds show up would be my guess. Um, or or maybe they're just trying to make it look like that high necked dress that she wore in the original. I I don't know, but the weird like open chest with like the full collar and then the the feather epaulets. It doesn't look good. It it doesn't look good. It's a nice silhouette. Like when yeah. she's like just like you just see the silhouette of her looks great, but in full lighting, it just it doesn't work. And Kunis's performance is it's bad, it's bad. Good, loved you in Black Swan, loved you. <laughs> yeah, great. but this is great bad. <laughs> um, I mean, I I like that. He's the one that gives her the idea to fly on a broom and stuff like all of those elements are fine. Like everything, all the all the elements of this are fine. But what we're actually shown as the execution is is not fine, not good and actively bad in some cases. I mean, again, I, I think Mila Kunis is capable of doing this, but the way that it was approached just doesn't fly. She's not. She is somewhat threatening. I'll give her that. Like when she's like flying around in the Munchkin land, like going from face to face and she's just like skimming along the surface. This is very cool looking and somewhat intimidating, but I, I don't know. It, it just doesn't, doesn't hang as a performance. I, I don't get why she won the MTV best villain of the year award for this. Maybe there weren't many. Honestly, it's, it's one of those things where yeah. I, I feel like people like her. Hmm. And so they're always willing to give her a pass. They're willing to give a performance that is not great a pass because she is a cool person. She um, is. And, and, you know, she's, she's a very cool individual. She's a good actress when she is, is given the right part. But everybody has their limits. Everybody has their, their niche that they should probably stick with. <laughs> and playing these kinds of basically what amount to cartoon characters yeah. is super hard. I mean, it just, you need you need a director with a really clear vision of what they want to sort of bring it out of you, I think. I think and, and maybe Raimi just wasn't able to execute. I think Rachel Weiss did a really great job being evil. I True. liked her yeah. evil witch performance. I think that maybe even swapping her into the role of the Wicked Witch of the West would have been mm. even better. 
Um, and finding yeah. maybe just someone different, someone older. I, I just, I didn't, I didn't buy Mila Kunis in this role. Um, kind of like Michelle Williams, where it's like, man, you're, you're cool, but not here. Not this. And I love Margaret Hamilton. I've, I mean, I've said it all, twice already. I love her. She was awesome. She was <laughs> yeah, on I Sesame mean, it, Street. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't, it takes skill to create one of the most iconic characters of all time who basically yeah. also established what we think of as a witch yeah forever like you I mean, created like, witches <laughs> yeah like it, it's just her it was her and that director sitting down and saying this is what we're going to do to create this witch character and now we've kind of now we retroactively believe that that's what witches look like and stuff it's like no they didn't they didn't have hook noses and warts and stuff like you know it's it's okay um so let's advance to the 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 final act because the last act of this is unfortunately um a, a big big fighty shooty sequence mm -hmm. but it's a it's fortunately a bit more clever than that a bit a bit not a lot <laughs> so one of the major threats that's developed in over the course of the film are the f not flying monkeys flying monkeys are good flying baboons bad um so so you know like evanora and and then as a matter of course theodora have access to this army of winged baboons um and the the winkies <laughs> and the munchkins develop a plan to to deal with them and in essence they they stage a battle and have them fight and go after a bunch of fake uh soldiers that they build little scarecrow soldiers because this is where the wizard, like he comes, he's getting ready to just ditch. Like he's going to fix his balloon and disappear or whatever. And he comes back and says, no, 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 I have an idea. And so they build all the, this fake army and then they send them out into a field of poppies. Poppies. Poppies will make and, them sleep. And theoretically, this is also where she gets the idea for that. and uses it against Dorothy. And so, I mean, again, all right, I'll give you the little prequel guy. You're doing a good job putting these pieces together. Well done. But so they lure all of the flying monkeys or flying baboons, excuse me, into the field of poppies where they fall asleep and, and yeah. become a non-threat. Um, so points for cleverness. With well the scarecrows. I mean, that was, that was really cool. Yeah. And it was neat. It was like, you know, real basic mechanical, you know, type stuff. But it, it worked well. And, you know, Evanora and, and Theodora are... Um, you know, forced to 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 deal with this this new threat. Um, they capture Glinda, and and then you know we move into sort of the final sequence where the wizard you know begins using his limited technological skill mm. to to start building illusions, right? And and so this is the part of the movie I remember when I watched it first in the theater. This was the part of the movie I actually enjoyed the most because it was finally the wizard using the skills he did have instead of saying, I'm not a wizard. I can't help you. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, well, I'm not a wizard, but I do know how to do these kinds of things. Yeah. That finally starts happening. And it's like, okay, well now you're, you're actually like a, a person. Like you're, you're an individual that's capable of accomplishing tasks. Um, instead of just sort of, cause he, through the second act of this movie, James Franco just basically floats from event to event. He has yeah. very little agency. He accomplishes very little. The only thing that he 
the only thing that he really does is um just sort of like complain and try to get away like that's all he does yeah. and 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 i i get that in terms of the character because you need to show him growing into an actionable good person but it's too much like we need way more of him like we needed more ingenuity like we needed more lead up to this moment when he when he becomes helpful like we should have seen sparks of this and i feel like was that supposed to be like when he glues the the doll's legs back on and i mean was that supposed to be it because if it was we needed a lot more of that Right. And that's really all I'm saying. Really two to three more scenes. Yeah. Of James Franco not being a huge turd. Yeah. Um, would have been enough to sort of sustain me throughout those building moments to get to that final battle where he's like, I've got a plan. I know what I can do. And then there's this this whole thing where Glinda is like, I believe in the wizard and I guess we're supposed to sort of I guess we're supposed to sort of believe that it's because she chooses to believe that it gives him power, right? Like it's it's the idea that I guess the first one really does play on that the wizard matters as long as you believe in him, whether he's real or not. That it's your it's your faith in essence that really is the powerful thing. Right. And, and if you feel, look at the gifts at the end, you know, of, of the I original. I feel like group. that's a seed that should have been planted much earlier and, and totally. watered throughout the film. Totally. I mean, when it happened, I was just like, this is stupid. That's <laughs> stupid and cheesy. And I hate it. <laughs> and it would have been, and it would have been so easy because they focus so much on when he's in Kansas at the beginning in the black and white opening on the fact that he's, he's a total charlatan. He can do nothing. He can accomplish yeah. nothing. And that's, I guess, the point of the little girl in the wheelchair, Joey King's character, is that he can't do anything like that. People wish he could, but he could never do it. If they spent a... way too much time having him try and seduce ladies rather than <laughs> right. develop this right. part of his character. We need to establish James Franco as a real lady. <laughs> All right, that's our goal here. Whereas it would have been really cool for him to have a scene with that little girl in the wheelchair to say, you know, I can't fix your legs, but maybe believing that your legs can be fixed, maybe that's enough, right? Yeah, like and, something. You know, something, you know, even if, I mean, as ridiculous as that is too, just something to show that there's an inherent optimism and belief can accomplish wonders, even if it's not backed by reality. You know, it's it's not a great lesson to give no (laughs) no um and i guess i guess maybe we were supposed to get that from from annie annie gale uh when Mm, she visits that she believes in him but at the same time what we're being shown as an audience is that well she's obviously stupid because he's a piece of shit (laughs) right i mean like it's hard to look at her and be like oh i see like you do have some faith in this guy But where the movie finally picks up, and this is where Sam Raimi's specific abilities, I think, come to the fore, is in in the enactment of the wizard's plan. Yes. Um, so he stages his death. He burns his own balloon. Um, or 
the he knows the balloon will be burned if he tries to escape. Fakes his own death, and then stages a show, right? Yeah, a big show. Which is that's uh, one of the things when she says there are thousands of people at the very beginning, there are thousands of people waiting for you. He's like, oh, that's a big show, you know? Yeah. And and we get that here, and so he he sets up a um an illusion using you know simple film technology, which we establish he knows via the the spinner in the room. He knows how to make movies, um, or how to film films, and so he. He scares away all the Winkies. He has the Tinkers, you know, build this little mechanism so that he can have a giant floating head in the sky, which, of course, we know is precedent for how he shows himself to the people. And it looks great. It like, does look and, great. And I, it looks really That cool. is maybe the one moment where I liked his performance as the wizard was when he's just being the big face in the smoke. Yes. Yes. James Franco is surprisingly effective as a face in the smoke. <laughs> You should do that in every movie. Uh, yeah, it's, it's why he did Pineapple Express. You put my face in smoke, I win. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I loved, I loved the the styling of that scene. Like, I love all the smoke effects in the movie, just in general, the way those look. But you know, I love the the eyeliner and the the mustache and just how you know, kind of classic that all looked. It was the first costume change he got as a character, where he it looks was. slightly so different. <laughs> the first time he put on anything else in the movie and he yeah. he styles up his mustache like all of the things that you think would have happened when he got to emerald city yeah. like finally happen and you know and then he stages this great show where he like has these beats like oh they think they've won they think they'll lose um there's some some loose wires and stuff that they do like it's 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 fun it's a fun sequence like yeah. you can tell that this was probably the sequence they had most in mind. Like they understood that what was going to happen here better than just about anything else in the movie. Um, and so like it, it really does a great job of both establishing who the wizard would become to the people that he would appear as this floating head. Uh, but yet, you know, his friends, the people around him would know that he was still alive and this was all just a show, you know, but yet they would understand that the belief in the wizard was the essential thing. Right. So they're really trying to like build a lot of fairly complex thematic elements into this relatively 20 minutes of the movie. It's like, (laughs) you know, and, and we've talked about this many, many times that, you know, if your messages are simple, then your movie can be simple, but this is a simple movie with some complicated messages and they don't really come across. Yeah. Um, not fully, but this sequence is is fun enough that I think it's it sort of buoys the whole film for me. Yeah, like it it doesn't make the first hour and a half any more like bearable. But if you're interested in sort of like seeing kind of what the movie's doing, you could just kind of watch this last this last bit and and be okay, you know, because it's yeah. kind of fun. Um. So all of this is is really in service of making of getting Glinda, who is captured and and you know sort of roped up for everybody to see, getting her free, and hopefully you know allowing her, who has actual power, to uh, to actually stop the witches because he can't yeah. do anything, you know. So they, I like that there's this ineffectiveness, this ineffectuality that the wizard still has, but he has these abilities that do give him some 
that do give him some cachet, you know. Um, I think Mila Kunis's makeup looks much worse in this sequence somehow. Yes. I guess maybe it's just the lighting. Like there's so much like bright lighting in it, but it just does not interact well with the green at all. Um, and as a result, you know, there's, I don't know. It, it just, it diminishes her visual look a little bit. There are so many like fireworks happening and yeah bright flashes that it just kind of highlights everything about the makeup that could look bad. Right. It is. And, you know, they, they trick her, they fire a bunch of fireworks at her, tell her to leave and she flies away on her broom. And there's a brief moment where, you know, James Franco says that, uh, she's always welcome back if she can find the goodness in her heart. And she horribly, screeches never and <laughs> and flies away uh yeah it was uh I, I, yeah yeah bad bad take i guess they didn't bad have take. another one <laughs> bad take <laughs> um yeah i i did like that I, I remember you know even in the theater i was sitting next to my wife and she looked and was like well I, I like that he offered that yeah right that, that there was this buoy of hopefulness there but she chose to to escape it because you know there is that idea i kind of wish that he had somehow felt bad earlier in the film or had been more sensitive to her because then that little change at the end where it's like if you can ever you know forgive everyone and be good again you can come back then it would have made Mm -hmm. more sense but up until that point he's just like wow that bitch is evil that's yeah, that's just really yeah. unfortunate. Glad I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> right, and and it's he doesn't necessarily take ownership of his responsibility in this. Now she was manipulated by Evanora. Like Evanora knew what was going on and what right. was happening, but still. Um, so I guess really the last thing we need to address is the witch battle at the mm. end. Um, Two thoughts? characters firing beams at each other. <laughs> yeah, it's uh. I mean, it's it's Yoda versus Count Dooku. It's um, it's just every single battle of magic that has ever been filmed is always going to look like this. Um, which by this I mean bad. <laughs> it's it's pretty rough. Um, there are a few practical effects, a few practical stunts, I should say, littered throughout it. Um, like whoever was the stunt double for Michelle Williams' character, she gets. <laughs> it's on some walls. Holy crap. Yeah. Some hard hits in there, man. It's like, did you make that wall out of pillows? I certainly hope so, because that looked like it hurt. Yeah. Um, but she gets gets flung around a couple of times and and yes, it's just a big it's like a big dragon ball fight in the yeah. air. But it's all in service of her removing Evanora's pendant, right? Yeah. And and the pendant apparently is the source of or, or one of the sources of her. Well, power. I mean, it's an emerald, and right. that's if you know anything about the Wizard of Oz and the the universe, the emeralds are where the people get a lot of their their powers. Um, yes. but this movie doesn't talk about that at any point. No, no. So whereas and- I felt like the glue and the zoetrope was such a great setup and payoff, this is this is a real huh. <laughs> What just happened? What is that? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 
I mean, not that I expect, not that I expect that that movies that are doing prequel stuff have to explain all of those connections. In this particular case, noting why emeralds are so important, probably not a bad idea. Yeah. Right. You know. Would help. Just mention it, maybe, you know. And, um, and, you know, we have the, again, the issue of her her spell is broken and she turns into a hideous old hag because there's nothing worse than being old and ugly. Um, you can't possibly be punished worse in life. It's the worst. <laughs> and, and, you know, she flies away on a baboon that was still hanging around or something apparently um some nice Raimi moments there like with the witch you know when when she is revealed as the witch you know it's a classic sort of Raimi snap zoom where she falls off the building it's the face rushing into it that we saw in dark man I mean mm-hmm. we've we've seen these things before like Raimi as a filmmaker has like a tool set and he's using it using it well And then, you know, Glinda reads the decree, the land of Oz will forever be free, which we know that's not true, but, you know, for now. Oz gets fucked over a lot. <laughs> a lot. It's like it's a just a land that's always in some sort of peril. Uh, then we get one more costume change for the wizard. He's finally in, like, his real, you know, suit and tails, but of course no one can ever know that he's actually still alive. Um, but he delivers his... Right, so we establish that he is a gift giver for his allies. So he gives the jackknife to the tinker, right? Um, which seems a bit redundant, but yeah. a lovely gift. Um, the happy mask for Sourpuss, uh, Tony Cox, the uh, the trumpeteer, the, the bugler guy, mm-hmm. um, to try and make him happy. Um, which, you know, sure. Sure, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you get the worst gift. <laughs> but, you know, I, I guess we have to sort of show that this is something that the people then do as they come to the gift, to the wizard for his gifts kind of thing. And then, you know, he has these specific gifts that can can help them, you know. Um, I mean, it's it's a nice moment. You know, this is one of the ones where I think there there could have been more work done to show that this was something the wizard did you know i mean he gave the music boxes to the women that he was trying to have sex with yeah but you know like what is gift giving to the wizard like again i i see i think there should have been a scene with that little girl where he's like trying to buoy her even though he knows he can't help her that would have done so much (laughs) where he's like let me give you this thing believe you know you can you can do it magic is real like whatever like i don't know but it just it, there's there's a piece of of connective tissue between that guy and this guy that could have been drawn more specifically to link them together as a single person, but a person who has grown right? right and now sort of understands what these things actually can do, and and like I said, it's just it's not bad. I mean, again, in a children's film, this is the the level of characterization and consistency that you would expect out of like a a middling animated movie, you know, just sort of yeah. like one that's, and we're getting through this, you guys, you know, but not necessarily one with the, I mean, quite frankly, the, you have to live up to wizard of Oz, man. Yeah. I mean, like that is not an easy task. I mean, and 
I mean, I don't have the affection for Wizard of Oz that you do. Um, I mean, I certainly, it's important. Like, and, and I've watched it. I know it's very important to my wife. My wife is, is a huge Wizard of Oz uh, fan. She loves the original film. And, and you know, so I, I, I've certainly, I certainly, I know a lot of people that this movie has an incredible amount of meaning for them. And it just doesn't feel like this one a- approaches that. And whether or not it's fair to even ask it to, I, I guess that's something we have to acknowledge. Like you, you don't go swinging for something like the wizard of Oz and right. fall short, which is why I think return to Oz works a little better is because they don't even try. Yeah. Like they're like, they're, we're not even going to try to get that down guys. They instead lean on the fact that Oz is a very, very strange place. And they, they yeah. kind of move away from the, the morality tale that is the wizard of Oz and lean more into just, just how bizarre that universe is. Cause it really is. If you haven't listeners, if you haven't read anything mm-hmm. about uh, the Oz books, look into them because they're just weird. They're just very, very strange. Um, and I, I kind of wonder if that might have been a better approach for this movie to be a little bit weirder instead of going for the jugular, so to speak, and trying to really, mm. really capture the Wizard of Oz. But I don't know. This is what this is what they wanted to do. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think I, I don't think Sam Raimi would have done it if he didn't have the chance. Like, I think he did this to try and play in that sandbox as much as he could. Yeah. And and bring his take to it. You know, I, I don't. Well, as a filmmaker of his pedigree at this point, I mean, what else would get you out of bed to try something like this? Absolutely. I mean, another, you know, big budget studio film with all these expectations and demands, you know, and, and again, he, he made good. He took it to Michigan. He made it there so that he could, you know, infuse some stuff in that film industry. Um, but I think the only reason you take a project like this is because that's something you want to try. You know, you want to try and get there. And I'll say he, I think the film succeeds more than it fails at the end, like in the total reckoning of the runtime. I think the movie does more right than it does just truly wrong, but it's just that there are so many missed opportunities. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of it really comes down to the screenplay. Yeah. I, I think Sam Raimi shot what was there to shoot and assembled it in a way that made as much sense as possible. But I think the, there were, um, there were huge portions just missing from this story that they didn't exist because if they did, he would have shot them. It feels like it, yeah. It, it and again, it's it's a lot of character stuff. I mean, really, the most dissatisfying com- pieces of this are just character beats. Yeah. And and mostly the wizard not really being likable until just like the end of the movie, um, which is a very simple way to sort of have him be like, "Oh, I'm a terrible person," and then all these things have happened. Now I'm a good person. But I think it could have been much more subtle than that. And maybe it's Franco. Maybe Franco's just not communicating it. But it really just feels more like it's just not there for him to develop. Like the the reckoning of what this person was developing into at the time. And I mean, and at the end, I guess really the wizard's still not that good of a guy. I mean, I guess that's the other piece of it. Yeah. He's, he's still kind of a huckster piece of crap. And now he's going to manipulate these people of Oz into thinking that he's powerful for the next, you know. Yeah, we're we're seeing the success story of someone who doesn't deserve it, and that's right. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's difficult because paired with 
1939 film, Dorothy absolutely deserves success because you like Dorothy. Yeah, even though Dorothy goes on a murderous rampage <laughs> and and just ends she the lives. She crushes a woman with a house. <laughs> burns another one alive. Um you you root for Dorothy because she's she's kind and she's good-hearted and even though she doesn't necessarily make the best decisions every time, she still is is trying to do what's right as she understands it. And and the wizard just isn't there enough and if that was the point, then, you know, mission accomplished. <laughs> but I think, I think it's also to maybe the movie gets a bit confused about who it wants to be the hero because Glinda is the real hero. Yeah. Right. Like she's the one that actually gets, I mean, in, in, in terms of the plot, she's the one that gets shit done. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, it's called Oz the great and powerful. Like it's his story of ascension to this, this, you know, giant floating head in the smoke and and it just doesn't you know i don't like him enough to be happy about how it resolves exactly when it comes down to it and that's that's a and that's unfortunate i definitely don't get why glenda's in love with him no like, that makes zero sense that, yeah nor does it have context for the, the if this is a prequel nor does it make sense for how she talks and tr talks about him and treats him you know then right like right because Glinda's not like, oh, you're going to go see the wizard, huh? Well, let me tell you a thing or two about that guy. He's pretty great. You know, like, <laughs> we don't get any of that at all. So it's it's very, you know, again, movies have to have romance. I get it. But at the same time, I don't know if this one needed that layer of stuff. Um, especially given that he, <laughs> we see him, like, actively pursuing four or five different women yeah. over the course of the movie. Uh, I don't know. It's It's a weird one. But. But in reviewing it, I, again, I Sam Raimi has had a really varied career, as we said, and I don't think there's a real true stinker in the bunch. Even this one is not like this is this is lesser Raimi. All I of his movies that. have something, a reason yeah. to watch them. Yeah, I mean, he's just I don't know. He's a solid film director. He understands the core principles of what a, a movie needs to be. Um, and, and I really love the Ramiisms of his filming, right? There's just things that he does that, and, and ways that he thinks about things that other, other directors just wouldn't do, you know, POV shots and, and, um, you know, close-ups and all kinds of stuff. And there's, there's not a ton of that in this one. This one's pretty restrained on that front for the most part, but he works it in wherever he can. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess it's worth noting too that this was that time in Hollywood where everybody was obsessing about old film technology and just you know because we had like Scorsese made Hugo which was all about um you know early film and then uh the artist won uh the Oscar around that time because it was about silent film era stuff Shape of Water um which is a little bit later than this but you know, like everybody was just had this like huge raging boner for just, oh, remember what movies were back in the day? Remember yeah. The essentials of film, ah, the, the flickers. Remember the flickers, <laughs> kids? You know, like it's just that kind of attitude. And Overly it feels romantic. like Raimi's, yeah, just the romanticization of, of film and film technology. And of course, this one, I think, has a justification for it because that's the technology that the wizard uses to sort of enact his plan and and, you know, sort of show how he create he becomes a 
special effects artist, I guess. Like, I mean, that's really what he becomes at the end of this film is the guy who comes up with a way to create special effects in, in real life. But there's certainly a bit of that here too. So, I mean, you know, Disney is nothing if not one to chase as many trends as they can possibly chase in the pursuit of your dollar. Um, but it, it feels like there's a little bit of that going on here right. too. Like, Hey, it's, if you're making a film right now, you need to, as a filmmaker show that you, you understand what film is and where it came from and its origins and its uses and its history. And there, it just feels like there's a bit of that in there too. Right. And you know, it's fine, but it was just one thing that I, I noted on the, the rewatch. I was like, Oh yeah, a lot of people were doing that kind of stuff in, in, 2010 to 2015 everybody was just you know just flagellating the film <laughs> over and over again just like oh film you guys oh my god um and as a film fan i'm like i'm okay with it but at the same time it's like you know don't just do it to do it you know have a yeah. reason and then the, this film at the very least has like a reason to do I, it, so. I would agree with that um, all right. So, I mean, we've kind of gone through it. We didn't, you know, scene by scene breakdown, but we kind of hit the major beats. Uh, anything else worth noting in this film of its shaky performances and less than robust character development? It, um, it made me really want to watch The Wizard of Oz. And I haven't watched it in a long time. Sure. So for all of its faults, I mean, it did kind of, you know, tickle all of those memories and it make me excited about buttons. the wizard of oz again so good on you movie good on you movie you did it um yeah i'm kind of in the same boat i i did not hate watching this um i a lot of the pain of this film is the wondering of what if yeah what if this had been done or and, and it's it's and it's never a great idea to approach a movie as a well what could this movie have been but this one especially it feels like it could have truly been something exceptional. Yeah. Um, with, a, you know, some different casting choices, tighter script, it really could have become a, an essential piece of that Wizard of Oz puzzle, right? Like, really, even though there, it's not a direct prequel, MGM, don't sue anybody. Um, but it would have been interesting to see them weave it together in such a way that reasonably for somebody coming to this now or a, a young kid sort of discovering wizard of oz now could have seen these two projects as sort of interwoven in an interesting way it, um, it kind of makes me wish that films were not the giant legal entity legally bound to so many yeah. laws <laughs> with infringement right. because that's that's what ultimately does the most disservice is that they couldn't reference the way that they probably wanted to yeah um, the big pieces that yeah. they could have referenced to sort of tie them together they couldn't touch you know and so i guess considering that they couldn't they get pretty close given what they've got yeah you know but uh, i mean the real reason why you know i think we're talking about this is that it's i mean it, to my mind it's basically forgotten like nobody remembers this thing no um and and you know Nobody's scrambling for it in 4K or demanding that it be added to Disney Plus, which I think it is on Disney Plus. Finally, I would have to verify that. But, um, you know, it's just it's one of those movies that has, you know, made a big enough splash when it came out, but has. Has basically been abandoned 
And that for me is is sad because I don't think any of Sam Raimi's movies deserve, you know, being being just straight up forgotten, right? Like they're they're all really, you know, have merit. Um, nope, Return to Oz is on Disney Plus, but uh, Oz the Great and Powerful is not. Hmm. So weird. Uh, maybe it's more legal battles. Who knows? Probably. Uh, although, M- although MGM's owned by like Amazon now. So <laughs> maybe that's the problem. Maybe MGM's like, hey, yo, Wizard of Oz, uh, they're, Amazon owns them now. Sorry. Well, maybe it's on Amazon Prime. On that one. Who knows? <laughs> uh, maybe. Yeah, I'm not going to you know, <laughs> type away and look it up on the podcast. But, um, you know, it's just it's one of those movies that I think has, has fallen out. And if, if not for Sam Raimi sort of coming back onto the scene with uh, Doctor Strange, would anyone remember that he directed a prequel to the wizard of Oz in 2013? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of strange. It's weird to think about, but uh, all right. So I guess we'll, we'll wrap this up. It's a, a soft recommendation for me. I, I think it's, it's certainly worth your time. If you have any affection for the wizard of Oz, um, as many, many people do, then I think it's worth watching this to kind of see at least one take on how the wizard might've developed into the, the wizard that we meet in that film. And it's definitely, other, it's know. definitely a film made by someone who has affection for The Wizard of Oz. So absolutely, in that way, Sam Raimi's it's love watching. for it is obvious. Yeah, he he is he is into The Wizard of Oz, and was excited to sort of further explore that world. And there is some some interesting stuff to explore there, you know, with the the sort of dynamics of the world and and how everything breaks down. It's it's very interesting. But um, in any case, I, I think you know it's a pretty decent recommend for me. Same. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, uh, thanks for hanging out, dear listener. We will be back next week uh, or soon with another <laughs> episode of Failure Peace Theater where we look at uh, cinema's failures and misfires. Um, I'm sure we've got a few more Sam Raimi ones we could talk about. Like I said, Dark Man was on the list. Review yeah. kind of got there first, but um, I have an unreasonable affection for Dark Man. Um, it's a special movie. Listening to Liam Neeson try desperately to maintain an American accent is that's always so a treat. Exciting. <laughs> it's a treat. Uh, even still, he still struggles with that from time <laughs> to time. But, um, but uh, really, uh, doc- I mean, it's got Doctor Giggles in it. Uh, yeah, from uh, the guy from L.A. Law. I mean, like, it's just a great movie. Uh, so we'll, we probably will talk about that one at some point. Maybe not next, but uh, in any case, we're excited about the emergence of the Raimi verse back to the MCU big budget filmmaking once again very excited to see if the mcu ropes him in at all um and i guess one thing will be is it is dr strange dark man or is it oz the great and powerful that's going to be the yeah. question because oz the great and powerful is sam raimi with some reins applied to his his tendencies i think whereas you know dark man's pretty untethered raimi it's it's purest raimi form um, but I'll be very interested to see exactly where Dr. Strange falls on that. Cause Same. I love Dr. Strange. Uh, he is growing up. My two favorite characters were Iron Man and Dr. Strange. They were the ones I loved the most. I bought as many comics of theirs as I could. Iron Man obviously kicked off the MCU. Dr. Strange. I, I really loved the original. I think Benedict Cumberbatch is perfect casting, perfect casting. Um, so I'd be very interested to see what they do because this is being billed as the MCU's first 
horror film. It's a legitimately scary horror film. It better be scary. That's why I'm very anxious to see what that looks and like. And if there's anyone who could do it and MCU still make crew. it a Disney movie, it's Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi's your guy. Exactly. Um, so I, I, I'm curious to see. But if it if it smacks of Oz the Great and Powerful, we'll know what happened. <laughs> if James <laughs> we'll Franco know. shows up at any point. Oh, God. James Franco's going to show up, isn't he? Oh, damn it. No. Um, yeah, instead of the uh, Bruce Campbell cameo, there's a James Franco cameo in all of no. Raimi's movies. Moving forward. <laughs> um, we know Ted uh, Ted Raimi's got to be in it somewhere, too. Yep. He'll probably be a waiter who yells at Doctor Strange or something. But Ted Raimi will be in it. Bruce Campbell will be in it. Um, be great if you got Francis McDormand in there somewhere. Just just bring them all back. Everybody. Sake. Yeah, everybody. Put a Coen brother in there. Whichever Coen brother is still, do, still making movies, put him in there. <laughs> just uh, Just as a joke. <laughs> But we'll see. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening, and we will catch up with you very soon. Bye-bye.